0: Dedicated to Henry Farman.
1: In the years of the final course, from the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him in hollow skin from the heart of an holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and the man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the
2: vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for higher. He drove the celestial team,
0: and man was the Lord of the Fire. deep mouth from their
2: throne, deep-seated, the choirs of the eons declare the last of the demons defeated, for man is the Lord of the air. Arise, O man, in thy strength, the kingdom is thine to inherit, till the high gods witness at length that man is the Lord of his spirit. Yes. Hello. That was Alistair Crowley resurrected and brought back from the dead by my necromantic dark arts of audio engineering. Pretty cool, huh? You might've heard that before. It's pretty famous, but the recording that is out there is from a wax cylinder actually that was done of Crowley towards the end of his life. It's full obviously of hiss and crackle and the uh, leather belt of the recording device going actually underneath all that hiss and crackle and sounds uh very old so by the by as if by magic i have brought him back using some artificial intelligence tools and audio engineering sounds like an actual person again i was impressed crowley is of course the topic of today's podcast with tobias churton who has returned to the podcast after I think like five or six years we did. We did, I think like the fifth episode of this podcast we did on one of his previous biographies of Crowley. He has now done five biographies and is planning a total of six to complete his set uh, in the style of Martin Gilbert's eight volume biography of Winston Churchill, Crowley's Lookalike. Uh, who is actually a major character in this current biography, which is called Alistair Crowley in England. The great beast returns and focuses on Crowley's uh, actually kind of the last decade of Crowley's life during the world war II period when he has returned to his home country uh, and uh, uh, all kinds of intrigue happens. Hitler is running around. He is freaked out about that. Uh, His students like Jack Parsons are goofing off in California He's trying to get the book of Thoth done. He's scrounging for money. Uh, There's a lot going on. This is a great book. I really enjoyed it and I highly recommend it. It's out now from Inner Traditions. I actually recommend this whole set. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, definitely uh, probably now the definitive biography of Crowley uh, when taken as a set, which is saying something because there's a lot. There's a lot of biographies of Crowley and they just keep increasing in quality as time goes on, I think. So that's um, saying quite a lot, I think. Here's a bit about Tobias from his website, which is tobiaschurton.com. A world authority on Gnostic spirituality, Tobias Churton is Britain's leading scholar in the field of Western esotericism. Holding a master's degree in theology from Oxford, he was appointed honorary fellow and faculty lecturer in Western esotericism at Exeter University in 2005. Tobias is also a filmmaker, poet, composer, and the author of many books, including The Gnostics, The Golden Builders, Occult Paris, The Babylon Gene, and acclaimed biographies of William Blake, Alistair Crowley, Elias Ashmole, and G.I. Gurdjieff. Very good. This is a long conversation. There's a lot to talk about. Crowley is a massive topic, and it's always a pleasure to talk to Tobias and learn even more about a subject I know a lot about, but he definitely Uh, schools me many times in this podcast. It's a great episode. So enjoy it. But before we start, are you feeling stuck? Do you feel disconnected from your true self as if you've been knocked off the course of your life by this pandemic or just in general? Or maybe you feel stuck in a day job or you have a deep burning spiritual yearning to be more than you currently are, which is, of course, to become who you truly are. Can I recommend magic.me, my school for magic, mysticism, and Western esotericism. It's M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. At magic.me, you can master the best techniques in the world for personal empowerment, spiritual development, and consciousness expansion from ancient traditions and modern technology alike. You can learn magic and meditation anywhere on your own timeline. You can tap into thousands of video lessons on the core teachings of the world's sacred traditions, to supercharge your life with empowerment, clarity, and purpose. And it's easy to do, the the material is very challenging, but we make it easy to deliver the content to you. You can stream in HD to any device, binge, watch the classes, which most people do, or take bite-sized units one by one, and build your skills, and build the life, and become the person that you know you are meant to be join our crew there. We have a, uh, actually now a pretty huge core of dedicated regular students, and we're always doing new experiments, um, in practical magic. And also now, uh, branching out into web three, uh, we are uh, trying to figure out this whole web three, uh, phenomenon and experimenting with it. Obviously people have, um, a lot of people are very annoyed about the idea of NFTs, but uh, I think there's something interesting there. So we have opened up a, an occult art gallery to show off the artwork of our students, which we have so many art uh, artist students, whether they're fine artists or musicians or filmmakers, that uh, I wanted a place to show that creativity off and that that art gallery is growing. And we actually have it shown off in virtual reality now. All right. So check it out. All of this is available at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. So I will see you there and I will see you in class. And without further ado, here's Tobias. Pleasure to see you again. Thank you for being on the show again. This is, if you remember, we did one about five or six years ago, I think.
1: Well, a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. It's and surprising. you wrote to me. That's right. You wrote to me, and uh, you wanted me to teach you Western esotericism. And I thought about, it and I, I, it was one of those things I didn't know what to say, and I, I just, eventually over time, I forgot about it. So I, I'm very sorry that I did not you.
2: Well, I was curious about a uh, Western esotericism, I know, but I, I was curious about pursuing a, a degree program. But then, uh, hopefully, you saw my John Dee book that came out from Inner Traditions. Which is uh, John? No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I did like a 600-page biography of D called John D and the Empire of Angels oh. that they put out.
1: How amazing! How amazing! Thank you. Have you read Nicholas Cluley?
2: Yes, of course.
1: Uh, very difficult book to um, to assess. I think I th- I find these um, these. I mean, the Monas Hieroglyphica is. Uh, it's about really it's about an alchemical dream ah. and you have to be on the trip uh, to get much from it who was he writing it for it's it's really a question
2: i think he was writing it for uh, the uh, holy roman emperor to try and get patronage at the time maximilian
1: well, he he either didn't know the holy roman empire emperor very well or, um, you know, he must've been on, he, he must've been on a trip when he wrote it. You know? Yeah. Um,
2: not the most common sense.
1: You can't help it like D. Uh, that's for sure. Um, you know.
2: Yeah. He, he, for me is the, him and Crowley are the two pivotal figures uh, for me, I think. And, um, um, but yeah, I spent, I must've I, I started on the book. I mean, shortly after we had that conversation and I spent four years uh, almost 24-7, well, not 24-7, but all my waking hours working on it. Uh, so it was quite a trip, as you say. Uh, and it was interesting to assess Crowley and Parsons uh, after, because the, the last third of the book is about Crowley and Parsons. So it was interesting to reassess them and their work on Anokian after going through D. But Nicholas Cluley, I will say, was actually my favorite. Him and Deborah Harkness were my favorite Sources on D, but particularly Harkness drew from Cluely so much. So I think that's my favorite text on D. Actually, I can't remember what it was called, but the the two volume that he wrote.
1: I remember. um, I remember being at the Bodleian Library when I was doing the Gnostics film, uh, and I had. I was. I I was speaking to the then Oxford expert on D, and he wasn't much of an expert. but he had a pile of D's books that D had personally annotated in front of him, and I was looking through those and looking at his annotations. And uh, a couple of the things I noticed, I, I wrote down.
2: What did you notice?
1: And uh, the one that always got—it well, was just one phrase because it's been with me ever since: "Mundus imago Dei," the world is the image of God, which is a—he's—he's—he's he's, he's picked it up from from the corpus hermeticum i mean if you accept that the world is the image of god there is no end to what you can discover
2: i love it and yeah
1: so it is this
2: yeah d, uh, d d uh i i became so obsessed with d I, were those by the way were those the same books that were on exhibit at i think the royal college of physicians
1: i don't know um, I, I, I didn't hear about that. They but,
2: had some uh, of his annotated. Books they were there. all
1: books that were in. Well, it was in. They were all books from the from the Bodleian. That, that, so I don't know whether they were. I think the Welcome the Welcome Institute has quite a lot of D as well. I think.
2: Yeah, I think those were the same. And, they uh, they put yeah. some of those on exhibit. So, uh, but they they were under glass with only one page open, so you couldn't flip through them or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Do you think? Um, Do you think D is, uh, do you think Edward Kelly is the real um, author of the mystique rather than D?
2: What do you think? I'm mixed about it. Well,
1: I I, I think he was. Yes, I think he was. I think um, uh, Kelly was obviously a player. You know, it's very interesting that Crowley chose Edward Kelly as a precarnation rather than D. (laughs) He must have sensed that uh, Kelly was a reprobate like himself, Um, a dishonourable figure. I don't mean dishonourable in the aristocratic sense. I mean somebody who would be judged as morally unworthy um, by the standards of his time. And Kelly would certainly fit into that uh, as somebody that was not nice to know. And their relationship is very interesting, and it's such a pity we have uh no real information about how they got on, <laughs> except that deed was looking for a a medium um, and that's always a problem isn't it uh, His dependence on Kelly must have stimulated kelly's self-importance yeah to and a very large degree
2: th- that's certainly and highlighted.
1: Infl- and, and inflated and inflated his uh, inflated his ideas
2: yeah d was very dependent it, it, one of one of the really interesting things about that story also in relation to the subject matter in your book is the the rhyme or the repetition throughout history of d and kelly's relationship with parson's and hubbard
1: i suppose you could make that case i i don't think there's any real comparison at all. I mean, I just think that Parsons Hubbard things are, are sort of a sick joke. <laughs> and I think Crowley, I think Crowley was right to call them, you know, I get, what is it? I get um, fairly frantic when yes. I consider the idiocy of these goats. Yes. And I think, you know, he just saw them as, as, as amateurs. You know, I think Hubbard's just a kind of thief.
2: Yes, agreed. Agreed. Um, well, let's let's start off talking about let's let's talk about your book um, Any I, I just finished it uh, last night and uh, it was a joy to read any any time spent uh, reading or writing or certainly any any time spent with Crowley is time well spent I think and uh, so I, I want to start off by uh, Yes, uh, and I I do want to say I after reading your books on Crowley, I've probably read all of. The, I imagine all of the, bi- the biographies of Crowley at this point, and yours are the ones that humanize him the most uh, and paint him as a as a as a real person and a man of the world. By I mean, you even get into talking about what he was eating and who he, who he was seeing and things like that, but showing the people he was interacting with and that he was part of a social world and how other people around him were responding to him and how he was keeping up to date with how he was part of the trends of the times. That for me is the most interesting aspect um, or or one of the most um, striking aspects of of your books, unlike some of the other biographies which dwell on him. I mean, there's Simmons who just character assassinates him and then some of the other ones just kind of dwell on him as this great legendary figure which also i think does him a disservice so um but i wanted to ask you you've now gone up to the end of crowley's life so i think this is your fifth your if i'm correct your fifth biography of crowley it's the
1: penultimate the penultimate uh,
2: volume ah penultimate okay i was curious if this was the last one but uh okay good to know yeah. there's gonna be another one um but um my, oh, oh, oh. One more. Okay. Well, you say now, but uh, we'll see.
1: Uh, <laughs> never see it ever again, I <laughs> Right.
2: Yeah, I you you clearly enjoy spending time with him, which is uh, uh understandable. But um I want to ask you now that you have spent so much time with him, having written five books, how have how have your views changed about Crowley uh, from the beginning of this process to to now? I know it's a big question, but there must have been a journey of ups and downs of your Um, appraisal of him and how you assessed him uh, and uh, now having gone into so much detail. I mean, what, 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 how have your views changed about him?
1: Well, I think you, 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 you've introduced the idea of humanization and the humanation to use an old um, Moravian term, the humanation of Crowley is vital uh, for understanding for having perspective on the kinds of things he said and, and being able to judge them aright, But I have to say that, I mean, my, my initial response to Crowley was quite personal. That was when I was an undergraduate. But you had to go through this whole demon Crowley business of the fact that, I mean, I was uh, emotional. Sort of, I, I suffered for Crowley when I was at, at Oxford as an undergraduate, and I think the college chaplain wanted me out because he thought I was going to be a priest in the Church of England. That was the original basis that I went up to Oxford to do. And it became known that I was interested in Gnostic um, and what he regarded as heretical, heretical and and disreputable um, beliefs. So for a long time, I had always the slight uh, feeling that was I wrong about Crowley? Was my intuition that he was important and worth spending time with, was I wrong about it? Um, Had I introduced a darker shadow into my life? Were all the bad things that happened to me as I was emerged from college into into the world uh, and tried to make earning a living, were the bad things sort of somehow attributable to some sort of contact with a negative force? Was I deluding myself? Um, Was was really the essence of of this thing um, uh, fundamentally deviant? I had to go through all of that for a long time and I was constantly challenged. people I knew, friends I had. I remember one guy rang me up one day, years after I left college, I'd known him at, at Oxford and he said, oh, I've just moved to Birmingham. I said, oh, great, Ed! It'd be fantastic. We could meet up. He said, yeah. He said, um, are you still interested in Alistair Crowley? And I said, yeah, sure. Ah, oh, okay, right. And I never heard from him again. <laughs> so that, that the, the demon, I think what changed it, what changed it was, oddly enough, um, it, it came out of... Um, a project to make a, a documentary about Crowley, which I sort of dreamt up with a with a friend of mine, and in the process I went down. I went to the Warburg Institute, got to know the librarian, Dr. Ryan, and spent some very intense times going through Crowley's papers. And uh, I think I made a good decision on what stuff. And it, and you had to you write in a pencil. You weren't write a pen. You couldn't photocopy anything. So I had to literally write out what I found in the time available. So I was sitting there scribbling, 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 away as much as I could. That was really the breakthrough because uh, I found that there was no psychotic element in his, rec- his personal record at all, not in his letters, not in his diaries. There was nothing. I couldn't, you know, there was no locatable dark field there was no um where i i just felt yeah I, i i can see where he's coming from he's he's extremely direct and straightforward about his uh findings he's peculiar we are dealing here with a very very unusual mind uh and i like unusual minds if they're creative and my feeling about crowley was that he was always creative um, he was certainly his own worst enemy, as I think a lot of geniuses are, uh, because, you know, being, being, set, the trouble with uh, genius is that, is that you're never quite sure um, whether people, uh, it's this, there's always a lingering self doubt which comes from your childhood that you, you don't, um, you know, if you don't relate socially, directly to other people's thinking. You think the weakness is in you. Now, Crowley's way of compensating for that was to uh, very much divide himself off from a large element of society, especially when he was younger. But that that process changed, and uh, he he came to appreciate the values of the ordinary. Not not, not to interject,
2: but... As you're saying that, I'm wondering if part uh, of that, sure. if part of that, would have been the fact, um, the incident when he was younger, where they put him in isolation uh, for immoral acts when he was a young teenager, uh, where they they, they seem to have put him in some type of solitary confinement in darkness for a long time, and I've often wondered if that was no, 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 no,
1: no, no that's not true. Um, okay, no, that that would be a terrible exaggeration. Is his parents were, were, were within, their, within their lights, as we'd say, within their belief system, um, indulgent of, of Crowley.
2: I believe this was a punishment um, at school yeah. uh, no. in his oh, early teens. Now,
1: if you're talking about, yes, he went to a particular school. He went to a particular school in Cambridge, um, the Reverend Henry Darcy Champney's school. Now, Darcy Champney was, as we'd say today, was a bit of a creep. He'd been an Anglican clergyman who'd converted to the Plymouth Brethren, sect of which Crowley's uh, parents were members. And he ran a school which was closed down, mostly thanks to Crowley's uncle. Crowley told his parents what was going on. His uncle uh, investigated the school and it was actually, uh, he was removed, uh, Darcy Chamney. Yeah, that was a one terrible year of Crowley's school life where he was Directly persecuted hmm. and, um, and and soci- soci- socially socially ostracised by other boys, and it. He's an immensely proud person, Crowley. I mean, he really he was always interested in the Leo nine Leo nine aspect of his of his uh, of his um, uh, chart, his astrological chart. He wasn't a Leo; he's, he's Libra, of course. But but he thought Leo was the dominant thing. Leos, I speak as one myself can be very proud and very sensitive. And he was a, uh, a sensitive fellow uh, at the time that these, these things happened. That certainly obviously shaped his sense of um, separateness. Uh, you know, Crowley called himself the wanderer of the waste, Alastor, from Shelley's, Shelley's great poet. Uh, he was a man who was prepared to spend a large amount of time on his own and stand up against society. He had the sense of a natural sense of aristocracy. When we remember the word aristos means the best, not necessarily the richest or the ones with the most land. He he said that all boys were natural aristocrats, but it was usually beaten out of them. Um, And that they were forced to, they were compelled compelled to conform. Now, one thing about his father was he didn't want his son, Alistair. Edward Alexander Crowley, didn't want him to conform at all. So he had a sort of, fir- his first education was in anti-conformity. To be a Plymouth Brethren was to be a unique group of the saved, you know. Uh, so he had this, so it was a double thing. While he was isolated from mainstream society, he was also exalted among the Brethren. And the problem only started when, he, when at the age of 11, Crowley's father died. And he had great respect for his father, though his father was somewhat distant. He was considerably old. He was an old man to have a child of of that age. And uh, he came under, of course, the influence of his uncle and his mother, who he regarded quite well. She was of a lower class than his father. She'd been a governess uh, when his his father had married her. But uh, Crowley's father had no class consciousness, Uh, as far as he was concerned. If you were in In Christ, there are neither slave. you know there's St paul's teaching in Christ there are neither slave nor free man neither Greek nor jew and Crowley's father used to take him on the road in Warwickshire and meet working people on the road and talk to them uh, face to face he wasn't a snob um, whereas his his mother he he suspected was was actually one a snobby person uh, but he felt that his mother's commitment to Plymouth Brethren doctrine was unthinking, and slavish, and doctrinaire. And uh, Crowley had an independent spirit, and of course, as time went by, rejected the whole thing. But, you know, Crowley was a complex psychological character and would give a... Well, Israel Rigardi, uh, who was a a kind of... um, He was a psychologist, uh, did made some penetrating uh, points about Crowley's defense mechanisms and his armor plating and so on and so forth. I think you have to take all of that into account when you you, you look at Crowley, some of Crowley's.
2: What were those, if you remember, for those who haven't, I, for those who haven't read Eye in the Triangle? What were the what were the major points that Regardi brought out?
1: Yeah, I, I mean to to. to to Israel Rigardi, who'd been Crowley's secretary for three years uh, and clearly admired him uh, hugely, at least to begin with, and then came to recognise him again later when he got over all the hurt that he felt he'd suffered. Yeah, he th- he felt that he thought that Crowley was sort of a massive defence mechanism and that um, in some ways he'd he, he, he not properly matured. He was the eternal boy. Naughty boy. Um, I suppose he probably threw in a bit of Freudianism, you know, that he was that Crowley was a bit anal, meaning that he'd never quite grown out of his earliest stages of development, and um, got ple- got pleasure from things that little children get pleasure from, and there was that aspect. But Crowley was quite honest about this stuff himself in his own writing. He he said really that he'd felt. That he was all he would ever be, he'd, he'd become conscious that even as a child that he, he felt he was a complete person anyway. So in that sense, uh, that you know, in, in the Freudian psychosexual development, he, he he got the lot. He was he was anal. I think the only thing he probably didn't have was a latency period.
0: <laughs>
2: yes, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. As Freud
1: described, yeah, between I, age seven and adult.
2: Yeah, yeah. That regardi book is interesting. I I, I think. Um, I only read it, it once, just, but I, I, f- there, there was this kind of a tendency with rigardi who, uh, or just kind of, um, amateur psychoanalysis in general, although it's not necessarily amateur in rigardi's sense. Cause he was all, a Reikian therapist. A,
0: Jason, <laughs> all, all it's psychoanalysts
2: all amateur. are amateurs. Yes. I, I tend to agree with you. Um,
1: because it's an, it's not a science, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's,
2: I had a, I had a, I had a hilarious interaction with the head of the International Psychoanalytic Association, where I was on a panel discussion with them about psychoanalysis and the occult, and I sat there very patiently, where four psychoanalysts droned on, droned on at length, um, with very dry speeches about. Uh, patients of Freud that he treated for 30 years and were still suicidal uh, and after which I proceeded to uh, hypnotize the entire audience and lead them into communion with their higher self and the, you should I've never seen somebody snap like the head of the international uh, psychoanalytical association he said this is all black occultism this led to the holocaust you have to stop doing this immediately and he just lost his mind I have the tape somewhere I should pull it out but uh, I tend to agree with you on that point, uh, and uh, you know, because it, it was it was fairly rude of me to just demonstrate. Well, Look here's something that John works. Lennon. What was that?
1: Look what it did to John. Lennon. Look what it did to John Lennon um, meeting Arthur Janov. You
2: know. Oh, the primal screen uh, therapy. What was the outcome uh, of that? I... Well,
1: the outcome of it was was that he became uh, hideously sensitive. That he lost his self confidence, he didn't have much anyway, and he came under the influence of, of any, you know. Well, <laughs> this was a perennial problem in John's life was this father figure seeking thing. Um, but for a short time, Janov was a father figure and told him that all his metaphysical beliefs about God and everything was was a cover for the pain, the pain of his upbringing and the pain of losing his mother and the pain of being, as he called it, a freak and an outsider and all the rest of it. And I, I think it uh, neutralised um, Lenin's poetic gift, um, coupled with a sort of zen uh, aesthetic which uh, Yoko was, had, had, had imbibed and, and surrounded him with. He was a man whose great gift was the play of words, playing on words and suddenly losing that confidence in, in his own gift, he also lost for a time, short time, I think, given the, the evidence, he, he lost the religious sense about what he was doing. And it, it, it then to justify his idealism, his social pacifism, he had to use socialistic frameworks and took on Tariq Ali, who is a British lefty. Um, you know, dedicated to world revolution and capitalism is the problem, and you know, world um, or oh, social etc. I mean, God, we need we know what we're talking about. Um, you know, the, the the panacea is socialism anyway, and I think he took that on as an alternative way of being an, an idealist, and it created a kind of false. I think in in Lenin's case, it created for a time a kind of false self and set up a. A wedge in his own being, because mm. in fact, of course, he'd always been uh, he'd, he'd always been a, an outsider, spiritual believer uh, on the Gnostic uh, of uh, in, in how can we say implicitly Gnostic cast of mind. Yeah, largely uh, inchoate in the sixties, hardly realised, but turned on a bit by Maharishi, turned on a bit by Alistair Crowley, turned on a bit by uh, his own. Uh, observations, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a fascinating... I, I wanted to do a book on Lenin's psychology and sorry, spirituality much, much more so than that. the word psychology. I'm hardly in a position to know his innermost thoughts. I, I have no idea. I that can only judge from...
2: That would be so great. Much, that, yeah. that that's kind of how I feel. What I was kind of getting at with Regardi and Crowley, in a sense, where it's it's almost. It, I feel that psychoanalysis in general, and particularly Regardi's read of Crowley, is on one hand too reduct too reductive, and on the other hand, I often feel that yes. with, with Freudian, particularly in psychoanalysis, uh, that, you know it's all people like already know the answer they're gonna get before they look at the person and they fit the person into this model of, oh, they have father issues, they have mother issues, anal, oral, etc. And I think that with Crowley, you know, one, one, uh, the best definition I think Freud ever gave of psychoanalysis is bringing the contents of the unconscious into the conscious. And I think if anyone did that, it was certainly Aleister Crowley. And I think there was something fundamentally sane about him, despite being who he was, in the way that he is as you say very direct very honest he did not hide his character flaws at all in the sense he wrote you know the fountain of hyacinth and th- things like this so um and i think that reich for instance would almost see crowley as a kind of model of same you know fallicism and and straight you know straightforwardness with life i i think there was also uh you know, I remember reading in I think Kaczynski's biography. Uh, there's a, co- a conversation between Crowley and um, who was his student, who was a bricklayer at Cefaloo? Uh A
1: bricklayer,
2: Frank Bennett. He said he has a conversation. Oh, he wasn't
1: a bricklayer,
2: or he was something like he that. Wasn't a he bricklayer. was a builder or something like that. I may be remembering wrong.
1: He was an engineer. He was, okay, 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 okay,
2: okay, yeah. I take that back then. But uh, he he has Crowley,
1: his... Crowley exaggerated his working class, his uh, working class uh, credentials because clearly wanted to prove that Thelema could reach the working classes. So he became okay. a kind of model in that sense. That makes yeah. sense. Frank Bennett, fascinating guy, Frank Bennett. Have you Definitely. read his diaries?
2: No, I've been meaning to get them for a while. But they have this conversation where he says... Uh, you know the the true the, the true will lies in it. essentially doing. This is perhaps too reductive, but he, he says something to the effect of it, it it consists of doing what occurs to you before overwriting it just in the moment. And this is a very Reiki comment I think. And Frank Bennett uh, is so excited he leaps into the ocean. This may be a, an apocryphal story, but I think I
1: th- I, yeah, I know that it's not apocryphal. Uh, but slight, I think the emphasis you've given it is is slight, slightly uh, askew. Okay. Um the, the what, he, what he managed to explain, what he got Frank Bennett to see, was that the Holy Guardian Angel wasn't some kind of romantic idea, uh, even though Crowley used the term Holy Guardian Angel out of respect for the, sort of, the traditions of magic. Um, he, he managed to get, in a flash, Bennett to see that the Holy Guardian Angel was his own unconscious which he'd been suppressing because of his sex uh, phobia. And it was the breakthrough of his sex phobia which made him suddenly feel like a fully human being who didn't need to be ashamed of his genitals or his lustful urges, and that these these powers in man can be used magically and, and positively. And that created a kind of sense of wholeness in Frank that he hadn't experienced before. Uh, beyond that uh he never knew i think with frank bennett he never quite knew what to do with this newfound freedom uh i think he'd have liked crowley to say well now you must do this then you must do that well crowley's idea was if i if i've uncorked the geezer of the man's unconscious he'll find his own way and and frank bennett did find his own way and uh you know his 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 life after in Australia. We know very little about it, but some papers came to light that Keith Richmond uh, got access to from a suitcase of diaries and things, show that he was a different man after Jaffa, and a more complete man. And it only took that conversation of sitting on the beach to to wow. uh, to wake up to who he was. Well, I think a lot I mean, of people
2: that that's a hundred percent successful psychotherapy in one conversation. So there no, you have it,
1: right? Good. And only recognized it as such and I think if he could have turned it into an advertisement, you know, Frank Bennett before and after. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: He no. was a sex doubting, you know, blah blah done. And afterwards he's he's suddenly he's suddenly become a, 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 an angel and able to cope with the with the with the weight of existence.
2: Yeah, that conversation and everything you're saying about, it, I mean that that is one of the moments in You mentioned at one point in the book that there's a tendency of Crowley to be leading towards something and it seems like you're just on the verge of a huge um, revelation and then he kind of trails off. And I I think that was true. true. I think it was true of his writing. I, I think it was true of his life as well, where he was always kind of having great schemes for things that never quite came to fruition and plans for inventions or to go. Uh, you know, which is very much in the, the classical magician uh, mode. Of,
1: name me an artist from the Renaissance who had the same difficulty.
2: Right. It, but I, it
1: begins with an L. It begins with L-E-O. Oh, really? Leo
2: Say more about
1: that. His whole life. Well, this, look at Leonardo. He, how many finished works do we have of the great David, uh, man from Da Vinci? You know, that you can count the, 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 the combined da Vinci catalog that are absolutely, we know they were by Leonardo da Vinci, is tiny. Most of his plans were drawings, sketches. He concentrated hugely on the, on the minutiae of the human body, of mechanics, of the movement of water, of physics. Amazing mind, but hardly finished a thing.
2: Yeah, I think this is probably and, a trait uh, of genius and high I, intelligence, also. I think it's a feature,
1: he, it's a feature of, of a, a mind that is so capacious that it's the world that doesn't have the room to put it.
0: Yeah, I think there wasn't
1: the opportunity. Wasn't, you know, there isn't an opportunity for minds like this.
0: I agree. Still isn't. No, very true. In England,
1: if you can do more than one thing in, in England, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're either a writer or a painter or a poet or a musician or a this or a that or a politician, etc. And this horrible phrase "Renaissance man" is used about people with with you know got uh, uh, you know some very minor collection of qualifications. The Renaissance man is is a divine being let loose on earth who's going to find very quickly that this world is as an imprisoning power. And if you can get anything out, you're doing well. Um, because we are ruled by the, the limitations of, the, of whoever's in power. And the people who get in power have the greatest limitations because they are people who get in power only see ego or they have some fixed dream which they want everyone to fit in, you know. And whether it's democracy or, or autocracy, it's the same thing you still end up with a limited brain at the top.
2: I think that's a great segue for... There's there's several parts in here where you pull out some extremely looser writing. <laughs> I, what was that? I missed I said, that.
1: It was a joke. I said it's a, it's a, it's a segue to suicide. <laughs> you uh, might give up...
2: Rather than suicide, I was going to say Hitler, actually, because uh, you mentioned uh, there's... <laughs> There's quite a lot of this book, we should, to, to get to the contents of the book, quite a lot of this book is about World War II and um, you, uh, you pull out one of, I think, Crowley's best pieces of writing is the introduction to the book of the law, uh, which you, you point out as well, where you say, where he has this passage of democracy daughters and he, he points out the limitations of fascism and communism and they're all aut- autocratic and none of them and it could have been written about now. Uh, as I think you also point out, I think that yes. piece of writing is so lucid where he says only the law of Thelema or doing what you will can or embracing your own genius can lead you out of this starlit mire, as Austin Sparrow would have called it, can lead you out of the swamp. And, um, you know, if there's one thing I wish everyone in the world could read night, right now, it would certainly be outside of just the book of the law. It would be that introduction to the book of the law where he makes it so clear. And so... But I want to talk about the contents of your book. So why don't you, if you can, can you set the scene for us for this part of Crowley's life, which of course opens essentially with the rise of Hitler and World War II. He's returned to Britain. Um, who was Crowley at this point of his life? It's the last part of his life. Where had he been? What was he doing? What did he want? What was what were the major themes going on right now, obviously, as uh, you know, we're leading into World War II. Uh, Crowley is horrified, um, but perhaps a little bit fascinated with Hitler. Uh, what's going on okay. at this time?
1: You can do it if you, da- if you like, because you're doing it, or, or you can give me an attempt at it. Um, right. So, 1932, uh, Crowley's been in Berlin, uh, living constantly there for over, over a year, trying to make his way as an artist, as a painter. Uh, He has the first and only solo exhibition of a British artist in Berlin in the late Weimar period. This isn't recognised, of course, by art history. Nobody gives a damn because it's Alistair Crowley, and Alistair Crowley uh, doesn't fit into the paradigm of the history of art, which was well recognised by Karl Nierendorf, who arranged Crowley's exhibition in Berlin in 1931. Unfortunately, Berlin in 1931 had two major problems. One was uh, the depression, which was left uh, a very large number of uh, normally well-off people, absolutely broke, uh, penniless uh, on the street, some of them. And the other factor was the rising of this gang of, of, of uh, mad dogs, the Nazi party, um, national socialists, as they uh, called themselves by this time. And Crowley had to leave Berlin because he felt that with the, when Franz von Papen was made uh, chancellor briefly, this was before Hitler was chancellor in 33. Papen knew Crowley from New York, where Crowley had actually been in, in, involved in a disinformation campaign against the German interest during World War I, uh, where he had to basically pretend to be a pro-German for four years, uh, at least three years of the war. And uh, Van Papen would have had him on his sights. And he wrote to his friend Gerald York that uh, if he didn't want to make an appointment with the embalmers, uh, he'd better get out of uh, Berlin soon. So he leaves Berlin, uh, which was an artistic enterprise. He was there primarily to paint. So he was putting himself forward as an artist, a modern, a modern artist, and uh, was taken seriously by serious German exhibitors. He comes back to England, which was the one place he'd rather not have come back to. England was in deep depression, and he has got to, he has no choice but to stay in England because he can't get a visa to go back to America, uh, which by then he would have been interested in going back to because prohibition had ended. Uh, he He left America in 1919 when just as the Volstead Act was enacted. And you can't think of anything more anti-Crolian than the idea of a prohibition. You know, the word of sin is restriction, as the <laughs> as the book of the law has it. Um, so he did. He he he. By this time, he'd got a reasonable a reasonable following in California, around Los Angeles, and he wanted to take oh uh, take well, take over the management of that, because he'd left it in the hands of, of an Englishman called Wilfred Smith, who had many virtues, but but uh, it was, in Crowley's view, not up to the great task of introducing uh, Philema into California. And uh, he couldn't get out the country. Meanwhile, he was having to see the head of the liaison between the British security police and MI5 and whose eyes were on him because they were never quite sure exactly who Crowley was working for. It was very difficult. I think uh, Colonel John, John Phyllis Carré Carter, who was the, the, the in, in charge of the, of the department we're talking about, running special branch, as we call it in, in England, which is... I suppose, it, it, a sort of equivalent to the FBI, really. Um, and it would be, in the American terms, the liaison between the FBI and the CIA. In American terms, the English terms are different, uh, but that would be a, a, a comparison. Now, he's having to see Carter quite uh, regularly and give him reports, because Carter's realized that Crowley's quite useful. He's got to, Crowley's got to try and make a life in London at the very point when his reputation had been seriously, uh, catastrophically damaged uh, in 1923 by revelations from his time in Italy when he was living in Cefali. Uh A lot of that's faded, but <laughs> Crowley wants a vindication. He wants to be seen for what he is as, as, a, as a combination of poet, uh, thinker, philosopher um social uh, sort of social doctor, somebody who's got answers for world problems, and and as a a philosophical writer on religion. And he takes issue with a book that comes out in um in uh London in 1932 or 33, I forget exactly, it's over the period of 32, 33, uh by Nina hamnett who's a dear old friend of his, who's a painter. Uh, But she writes very flippantly of her when she knew Crowley in the 20s. But more particularly, she gives reference to a baby that allegedly disappeared from Sheffield. Well, this baby that allegedly disappeared was, in fact, Crowley's own daughter, who was called Poupe or Dolly, and and who died of a a, a fever. in in 1920 and and broke Crowley and and his his, his Scarlet Woman uh, girlfriend wife of the time if you like um, Leah Hersey and Crowley thought this was libelous and shouldn't appear in a pub a book of public uh, of public salacious interest because Nina Hamnett's autobiography was being presented as a racy a racy account of one artist's life in a sort of free bohemian atmosphere and He didn't want his personal things to be uh, written about in this way. And it was a a damning thing, because she was basically saying a lot of people thought Crowley was a Satanist and uh, would stomach, in pursuit of Satanism, the loss of his child. Now, Nina herself didn't mean it like that, but in cold print it certainly could be read. So he he had his lawyer, Isidore Kerman, go to Constable, the publisher, and say, I want uh, a settlement on this, you know, either remove it or I want a payment, Uh, I'm going to take this to court. And he took it to court. And in 1934, so he's only been back two years, he has this terrible court case where instead of a very reasonable claim that the book was libelous to his reputation, the court case turned into a trial of Crowley's reputation. Now Crowley's reputation was terrible. And, uh, the judge was absolutely against him. But the real critical fact, faculty uh, factor was that that um, uh, Nina Hamnett had bumped into a crooked lawyer, a, a guy called O'Connor in Soho in London, and he had managed to get hold of a little rare book by Crowley called White Stains, which was a, you could say it was a decadent work or you could say it was a pornographic work. It was... Um, anyway, it was full of sort of homosexual poetry and, and ribald humor. And of course, read out in court, it made him look like, uh, you know, doc, uh, the worst kind of person. And Crowley's, Crowley's defending counsel, uh, Mr. Eddy, was not very effective in defending Crowley. And he lost the case, which left him a bankrupt. So, Crowley, we're now in 1934. The country's still going through a massive industrial de- depression, unemployment, and he's stuck in London with no money. <laughs> no money. He can't get any of his books published. No publisher will speak to him seriously. I mean, he's really in trouble. And the only thing that's keeping him going is five pounds a month. That's five English pounds a month sent sometimes by his uh, followers in Los Angeles. And we we follow the story in this book of how he manages to get through the 1930s. And still kicking the same uh, uh, point across, he's trying to publicize Thelema while sinking into deeper and deeper poverty until he ends up in a a basement room in in Walworth in, in South London, south of the river, dreadful place. And at that time, he didn't even have sixpence for the gas meter to light the place or warm it up, and he couldn't afford a new shirt. And he's trying to cope. And he'd been, of course, a wealthy, wealthy young man uh, twenty years earlier. And uh, we we follow him through that, and he meets uh, this wonderful lady, uh, Lady Harris, Frida Lady Harris, who was married to the chief whip of the Liberal Liberal Party. Uh, in in the House of Commons in England, and she, who's a, a, an anthroposophist, gives him a stipend, a little bit of money, every month on the basis that she will paint the uh, tarot cards anew according to Crowley's designs. And that project goes on for about four years. And that keeps him going. He's doing other things as well, not writing as much poetry as he had, and then, of course, the war comes, and uh, I hope <laughs> I didn't want to say the whole general story of the book the war comes, and Crowley makes a big uh, attempt to, to galvanize patriotic uh, fight against what he calls "mad dog" Hitler, who, you know, he, he analyzes to his German friend Carl Germer, who's living in New York at the time, what is wrong with Hitler? He says Hitler does not believe in the true will of any individual. It's his will that counts, and he treats all individual wills as subservient, and he said, that's what's wrong with Hitler, full stop, that's it. He said he also doesn't like people who foam at the mouth when they're speaking and who lose their temper all the time. And he said, I like a man who smokes and drinks and enjoys life in an urbane and civilised way and can actually construct an argument in a reasonable fashion without losing their temper, becoming red or uh trying to trying to uh, you know evoke some kind of idea that you're god almighty and uh, he, so he analyzed the hitler thing and he decided that he that Thelema was absolutely against this and but but out of the conflict with the forces of freedom in the west america and and great britain combined which he was very seriously interested in a combination of the united states and britain uh, the memory of that's still with us, though, unfortunately, uh, the current president in America seems to uh, be extremely biased against uh, Great Britain, which shows a fatal reading of
2: history. H- how do you mean by that, specifically? Uh, uh, Biden, hmm? are you, you're, you're talking about there's a specific well, incident um, with Biden where he's, w- what are you referring to?
1: Well, I don't, I don't want to go into that because we're not having okay. any political discussion, and that. Put, takes it onto a really murky clay where everybody has their own. Was, was Crowley's interest in World War II is to get Britain and, and America working together against what some people call fascism, though I don't think the Nazi party conforms to the Italian idea of fasc- the fascisti at all. It's actually a religion uh, built around the personality of Hitler and a race blood theory. Uh, 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 which Crowley regarded as utterly obscene and absurd, uh, the notion that there was any kind of uh, God-given superiority in the Germanic people, he just thought was a joke. Uh, you know, especially as he'd lived there and he he knew the you know the various factors involved in German civilization. So that that it, that becomes his great interest in World War. Two, he gets very little encouragement from most of the British establishment, but a few people support him. One of them was Robert Cecil, who is a fascinating man who was at the very top of the British Secret Service and uh, was secretary to the head of SIS, Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, which he never told Crowley because he knew that if he told him Crowley would have been asking for favors but he did try to help him get a visa to America but i think J. edgar hoover probably had something against crowley coming back to america for some reason he could never get his visa right. uh, back to the united states uh, part of if, the if i can interject his there, life the
2: there's a paragraph that Please I, do. I i don't want uh, to i don't want to miss a- this cuz this is the point in the conversation to bring this in this is my favorite point my par- my favorite paragraph uh Uh, of the book, actually, that I think summarizes so many things. So there's one paragraph you you point out here, uh, or you write here, which is Crowley's V campaign signified a plan for a new planetary order based on the sovereignty of the individual's true will and unity of nature and spirit signaling an end to tyrannies, political, social and religious, establishing a rational, cosmic, individualistic, but freely cooperative existence. The war properly interpreted would mark a historic turning point from which attempts to return to the previous order would prove futile, regardless of how violently such reactions might be pursued. Crowley foresaw the downfall of any system in the way of the true will. To imagine Crowley content with a legacy of witchcraft, new ageism, or reputation as founder of modern occultism misses the mark. And I think that's so uh, on point and... It summarizes a lot of things about Crowley that are not clear at first and this whole period so I was particularly struck by that paragraph
1: well yes I mean well you've said it uh, Crowley's reputation even today uh, is not equal to the fact of the man and I I, I know that some people will never get it um, they will be inherently hostile uh, to the very notion of it in the way that you mentioned Wilhelm Reich. Reich talked about the emotional plague. There is sort of, in certain circumstances, even the most rational minds become overwhelmed by an emotion, and they simply condemn a thing but they can't get, it can't dare come near them. You know, and uh, I think Crowley has that kind of rep, the reputation of Crowley is is so divorced from the real man. Um, but then again, I don't think most people meet in their lives, have experience of people who, who, who've sorted their mind, soul, and spirit out to the degree that uh, a man like Crowley had. So, you know, they, they, they don't know. Of course, how can they take this person? You have to be a seeker in order to find and if you're not seeking, you, you will never see, recognize people like Crowley. There will always be a kind of annoyance because they're suggesting that you lack something. And I think a man like Crowley made people aware very quickly that they were lacking profoundly in a direct perception of the vitality of spiritual existence, its relationship to very real factors, uh, including you know the running of the cosmos, the geography and geology, and all the rest of it, and the biology of man. Um, they refused to recognise that what Crowley meant by magic was simply a superior conception of science uh, that wasn't uh, slavishly devoted to uh, a theory of a materialist theory of the universe. You know this is the this is the thing. I mean there are i mean i when i was at oxford i of course i was studying with physicists chemists engineers biologists and of course classicists historians politicians all the all the, all the general subjects one thing i observed was that the chemists tended to be evangelical christians the biologists tended to be atheists and the astronomers tended to be mystically theistic or open to ideas of a grandeur of the spirit however one might interpret it and that that gave me a lot of insight into the relationship between the psychology of of repression self-repression and the the attraction to certain kinds of discipline in other words people talk about science as if it's one thing And my experience of science depends entirely on which aspect of science you're talking about and to whom, which individual you're talking. There's a a well-known conflict, uh, allegedly, between religion and science. But I've met many men of knowledge science for whom no conflict exists at all. They're perfectly capable of sorting out the different planes of perception involved in science, you very often find, of course, that there's this. we have this great division in the West between the arts, artists, and science. Uh, and we repress the artist. For example, if, in England, if you don't pass uh, O-level um, mathematics, it's very hard to get a good place in a good university. Now, no one asks the mathematician, to uh, produce a piece of pottery or a painting to get into a university. So why is it that mathematics is regarded as obviously a superior attainment or a basis for advancement in our academic institutions? And the reason is, of course, is that we have in the West swallowed the notion of a particular idea of science, which has thousands and thousands and thousands of adherents who get very upset at the notion uh, that they might have the, the scientific mentality in general. And I, I use that, uh, you know, with all the reasonable idea that there is no real scientific view in general when you look for it. Um, but, you know, there is a general... There is something called sci- we can call scientism, which is a tendency to... Adhere ourselves to the scientific mainstream, as opposed to look for other possibilities. And I think uh, Crowley's viewpoint is obviously si- highly scientific. He was he he upset and annoyed theosophists. He upset and annoyed occultists. He upset and annoyed uh, people who believed in you know crystal magic or God knows what or whatever it was by his common sense and highly scientific approach. Unfortunately, he didn't meet in his life, uh, or, I mean, he, in Berlin, he, he, he knew Einstein, he knew um, various, you know, major scientists who, who he, he met and, and discussed on their own level with. Uh, that aspect of Crowley has always been suppressed, by the way, because he has to appear an occultist. But it, Crowley was actually a, a very much a man of science. He may have been an eccentric, an eccentric man of science. He may occasionally have been visionary. Um, but essentially, he was trying to find a scientific uh, solution to, to the religious problem. He outraged his parents. He outraged religious people. For him to be dubbed an occultist is of course it's an absurdity he he's, he, he regarded most he said 99 percent of occultism is 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 misleading you yes. know and or you know just useless yeah this is he's, so... a, he's very you know that to place
2: yeah this this for me what,
1: what,
2: what you just said of of trying to bring bring this you know the uh, scientific solution for religion. That for me is the the crux of not only Crowley, but the whole human project. And it's something that he was trying to get across that. I suppose I've been trying to get across to people my whole life in a sense. And, and perhaps we all are. And this is, it's so hard for people to see, even when they look at Crowley. And I think to make this point that not only is, um, the, whatever we want to call it, the exploration of spirit, not separate from science, but it actually doesn't even have anything to do with popular occultism, which is this miasma that unfortunately this always gets tangled up in like a a swamp. Uh, And it's, uh, I get very frustrated about how that's going to get disentangled because it's so obviously the key to the whole human project, in my opinion.
1: Well, that's why I wrote my book last year. The one that came out last year was The, the Lost Pillars of Enoch. I mean, that book is about how to, the, the quest to reunify um, what we call religion and science. I don't mean by religion, people's individual, uh, people's particular religion or uh, religious philosophy, but how to uh, see knowledge as knowledge. You know, it's knowledge you're talking about. Now, some forms of knowledge are very difficult to acquire. Um, it's very strange in religion. Everything's supposed to be accessible to everybody, uh, whereas, in fact, if when you talk about science, most people would say that calculus, for example, you know, a higher, higher aspect of mathematics, or um, you know, quantum physics are really for very brainy people. You have to be brainy, as we say in England, you know, full of... Hi, hyper intelligent to understand them uh, whereas religion everyone thinks to understand it it's very interesting that um, so we've got a long way to go long way to go on that uh, but my book last year was about that that idea and i focused on the notion that in fact the the es- so-called esoteric aspects of all the major religions not only agree fundamentally but provide a scientific basis for consciousness development. By scientific, I mean you can experiment and get results, and you can demonstrate that certain activities produce certain results. This is, is, if it's demonstrable knowledge and repeatable knowledge, I call it science, i.e. knowledge. It's knowledge, something we know. We know if we do this, we'll get that result. And if we don't get that result, we should analyse what's, what's going on, and, and maybe we'll learn something new. And that's how we get on. Experiment means experience. And people who've had spiritual, what they call spiritual experience uh, need to be taken as, as uh, conduits of knowledge. The notion that a mathematician, physicist, or astronomer is more capable of dealing with the, the mystery of human... Uh, I say mystery simply as a, things we, need, we don't know enough about. Uh, but to say that the, the arbiter of, of knowledge... Uh, is one of these departments of science, it is ridiculous. Uh, luck, I had the great advantage that I, w- I went to a, a proper university where the universe was the subject. And so I had the opportunity to meet, talk, socialise with, and encounter different kinds of mind to my own. And that's very, the best education you can get, is to meet minds that are very differently cast to your own. Because it stops you becoming a fanatic, a single issue maniac. People who glue themselves to the road because they think the world's going to end in two years' time. We have a rash of these fanatics in England at the moment. I'm sure you've got them in the United States. This
0: is the uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion. Issue. This yes, is, yeah. that
1: kind of thing. You know, there's only one issue. There are only apparently there are only. You know, there are only three commandments these days, according to this uh, outlook. You know. Um, you, uh, don't be prejudiced against transsexuals. Um, d- do not distinguish between races. And I suppose the third one is you must believe in climate change is all man- mankind's fault. And uh, capitalism is the cause of climate change. Those are the three commandments. And if you accept all those, you are, uh, you are okay. And if you don't, you are cancelled, which is a form of social murder, as far as I understand it. I noticed the Pope has even said something on that subject in the last month, and quite rightly too, because these people don't seem to understand the freedom of the human mind, and Crowley did. And we don't make progress by narrowing our viewpoint. We, we make progress by expanding our viewpoint, coming up against obstacles, and dealing with those obstacles. You don't Uh, You can't be progressive if we all think the same. If we all shared these views, we are in true darkness.
2: What do you think Crowley would have made of this period, particularly as somebody who came into the, you know, the the crosshairs of the press and the public many times in his life?
1: I think he would. I think he, on an optimistic day, (laughs) on an optimistic day, he'd have said, "This is the last. uh, This is the dying um, cries." of the, the the restriction mentality. The word of sin is restriction. These are people who want to stop you thinking differently to them. So I think he might've seen it as that on a good day. On a bad day, he might've wondered whether in fact the Eon of Horus was actually a failed enterprise and they'd have to come up with something else.
2: Yeah, I've thought about this many times because it, it, the current period definitely seems to be all the worst aspects of Christianity, like the Sunday squad and and not people not minding their own business, but without any of the good parts, like transcendence and brotherhood and so on. But it, it's very much the same uh, mismanners mentality.
1: Crowley uh, was always very close to the uh, to the ethics of Jesus because he'd been well taught them by his father. He understood, I mean, Jesus's main teaching, as I understand it, that we have purportedly from him, the main essence of it, as I, as I understand it, one is against hypocrisy, which is to pretend that you're something that you're not. Uh, the other is against judging other people, <laughs> presuming that they are worse than you. As he said, why look at the... Uh, the moat in your brother's eye and forget the beam in your own. A moat is a little bit of wood, you know, splinter, a beam, obviously. In other words, my father used to say those people with no business of their own are forever minding somebody else's. Now, that is just another way of saying do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. It is time people learn to mind their own business. And minding your own business means finding out What you're here for, where you came from, and where you're heading, which has always been the itinerary of the Gnostic. That's your business. That's why you're here to find that out. What can you contribute? You're not here to become a mouthpiece for the loudest bunch of of psychos in in, in the area. That's not what you're here for. You're here, this is the whole Crowleyan libertarian ethic. Uh, which is so vital. He he didn't say he was saying anything original. He recognised there were plenty of people who had a similar outlook. And he he gave them a sort of a jokey name, Thelemites, based on um, the satire written by Rabelais, published in about 1516. It's an old story of a group of people who knew how to get on with each other who weren't a pain in the neck to each other, and you knew how to enjoy life and be lib- liberal in spirit. That means generous, by the way. That's what liberal means, to be generous in spirit, to be accommodating of each other's differences, and to enjoy existence. Whereas today we seem to be beset by a media obsessed with focusing on people who don't seem to enjoy anything.
2: Yes. You what? know, except get- one of, one of the bitter ironies Getting of this in the- for me, one of the very strange and, and bitter ironies of that, when you talk about the, the torch and pitchfork squad of the moment who seem to haunt the Guardian comment section, is so many of them love the idea of witchcraft and astrology and and all and popular occultism, yet they're, they have torches and pitchfork in hand. And I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon.
1: Yeah, of course. We, I mean, I used to go to Glastonbury in England, you know, the music festival. And I came back one year, you know, we were talking about it. There appeared about 20 years ago. Is it 20? God, no, it's more. It's 30 years ago. I noticed the appearance of what we call flower Nazis. These are people whose devotion to Mother Earth and all its goodness and all the rest of it um, was held to such a degree that they quite happily see the annihilation of most of the population of the planet so that the trees would grow bigger. So it didn't matter whether human beings grew bigger because they're really human. You know, there is a the heresy of our day is that human beings are the problem. And you know, if, if we don't repress them, stop them, change, get them to change their ways, and all the rest of it, you know, somehow the whole thing's gonna the whole world's gonna collapse. Well. I've got news: uh, the world won't collapse. Humanity might, <laughs> very easily, very easily, and it's a horrible thought. And I think you have to be very immature not to realise just how horrible and unbearable social breakdown is. We've had the dark ages. The dark ages appeared in the Western world um, by the end of the fifth century, in and in large parts of Europe. That darkness went on for five, six hundred years and in some places perhaps has never entirely gone away the dark ages are when the spiritual impulse and the, the mentality and intelligence of man has been suppressed and tribalism and narrow-mindedness and violence have taken over and and anarchy these are these are things that that a lot of our radicals seem to think are welcome welcome science uh, in fact they are, they are foolishly and criminally foolish people in the end no matter whether they're bright uh ordinary intelligence narrow-minded whatever what we all want to do is to get up in the morning and know we're going to survive to the end of it yeah be able to project into the future
2: yeah it's uh and
1: i i i i i i I fear that some some of the, the hotheads of our time are. uh they remind me of what were called the iconoclasts the image breakers of the 16th century in england when you had all these protestants as they were nicknamed going around churches smashing every every statue of a saint it's all idolatry my arm um, we heard that it's all idolatry smash the things smash the churches smash the windows smash any artwork in oxford a mob got into the bodily rivalry and burnt every book that had a mathematical diagram in it because they said mathematical diagrams are satanic. You know, it's all some great... Cons- These are your conspiracy This mentality. sounds familiar. This sounds everything's
0: familiar.
1: A everything's a conspiracy. Yeah, everything's a conspiracy, and we, you know, anything is good to stop it. These people, because of our absurd mass media and the social... Um, the so-called social media, or more anti-social media, which we are using now to a good end, I hope. Uh, but because of the plethora of giving this knowledge to fools and to the worst aspects of, of our nature, are uh, wreaking havoc again uh, across the whole world. Now, we, you know, this is a fact, and I wouldn't, let, I wouldn't want to leave it to governments to be dealing with it. We need to deal with it ourselves and calm down you know, and stop this apocalyptic rubbish and projections about, you know, whether we're going to survive or not, you know, whatever. Who knows? An asteroid could hit us in half an hour's time. Does it, you know, we got to, you cannot live with this permanent sense of threat. It's no way to live. It's no way to live at all. Uh, You've got to have a fundamental belief, and Crowley did have a fundamental belief uh, that the evolution of our species on this planet, uh, while it will be held up for long periods by folly and misguided attention, let us believe in what he called the great army of God. Lovely phrase, I think. And he didn't mean it in the jihadist sense. The great army of God is really, the, it isn't something that we are, it's something that we are pulled by over the generations People More and more people, hopefully, are going to become party to this fabulous spiritual liberty which lies around us that, at the moment, uh, people are becoming blind to. I mean, we have had a kind of huge materialist fest since the end of World War II. Standard of living in terms of personal comfort has risen greatly, unless you 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 happen to be victim of a knife crime or something like that. Um, but we we have made some material progression. The reason I write these books, Alistair Crowley in England, whatever they are, is we need to make spiritual progress. And spiritual progress is, of course, much harder to do, because it means looking into the truth of yourself, not relying on what you heard this morning, or what you were told to believe. And we can't expect every citizen of, 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 of the world to become university graduates with you know, highly tuned intelligences and mass reading. Uh, so, we need to present this material and learn to present it in a way which is accessible. The Catholic Church did that very successfully for 2,000 years nearly. And I, I, I recognize that achievement. They were able to inculcate some useful, useful, and practical guides for human behaviour. Their biggest mistake was opposing science, whereas they should have embraced it uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, as it is that they alienated what they thought was an enemy, namely people who wanted more, more more personal liberty and who wanted the freedom to explore the cosmos and the church allied itself with a repressive notion and and are now in the situation unfortunately where they where they, where they look mostly reactionary
2: Yeah, I, I think I often think about the current period, uh, certainly social media in terms of the catastrophic effect of the Aeon of Horus. I mean, what is social media if not every, every man and woman is a star and the actually quite destructive effect of that. So, uh, on a good day for me, I mean, certainly, um, I would hope that these are birth pangs of the Aeon of Horus and, and, um, but then again, Crowley also says the Aeon of Horus could be a new dark age and in America, we definitely seem to be, I wouldn't even say on the precipice anymore. America seems like it is in a new dark age and we don't have to worry about knife crime. I mean, we're all armed to the teeth here. So it's a quite frightening situation <laughs> and the country's on the verge of falling apart completely. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a very precarious time. And I, I think that to the the response from that is is this new pure you know puritanical impulse this new repression um that's not gonna that's not gonna get us anywhere and um but conversely you talk about the material gains we've made it's easier than ever because of our material growth to undertake spiritual growth and and like you i i this is what i wish for people
1: yes and um you know you have to have the will to seek it and uh there has to be a cultivation of intelligence um, at, an, at an early stage to provide the appetite for it. Um, if you know, from what I see in the terms of entertainment world gives me any idea of, Hollywood doesn't have much respect for the intelligence of its uh, of its um, consumers. It seems to me by Hollywood. I mean, obviously not all aspects by any means. They're terrific people. But in terms of what young people are given to entertain themselves with, they're they obviously not expected to think too much, you know, about anything. It's all visceral. But these they sound like things people said about the movies in the 20s, probably, that it was all, you know... I don't think that's where the, where the great the great problems of our time are I think let's go back to what Crowley was saying. I think it's these very naive ideas about um, you know fascism or uh, uh, communism or materialism as being you know the answer and this sort of thing. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't know where to start with, you know, trying to sort out the problems of America. <laughs> it's taxed, taxed the finest minds. Um, yes. You know, the, the only, my only one is, is the disease tends to start in America and then spreads around the world. Yeah, you have
2: a hilari- you quote you quote Crowley hilariously in this book. I, I loved it so much. I put it out on Twitter. That is, at one point he says, uh, I have a 50,000 year plan to save America. That was great.
1: Yeah. Um I don't think I have the answer to Americans' problems in in the sense that uh you can just say something and that's the answer there there are you know wh- where do you start with with issues like that?
2: Yeah, well, I wanted to maybe segue to uh Crowley's interaction. obviously he had been to America many times, but for me, it's fascinating that the test case for actually instituting uh, Post Chafalou, the test case for instituting an actual working Thelemic community was Los Angeles, and uh, the results were mixed, shall we say? I mean, Crowley had the you know initially had this idea that he was going to take over Amwork. and then and then we got the you know we got Wolf, Wilfred Smith came down uh, from Vancouver and and founded the uh, Agape Lodge, which uh, Martin Starr has written about. Um, so much and from Martin Starr's account, from your account here, from everything I read about it, it was, uh, a mixed bag. And, and Jack Parsons obviously is a very romantic and legendary character and so iconic in so many ways, but at the same time was clearly, uh, you know, he really gets raked over the coals by Crowley here. I, which I quite appreciated, uh, you pulling out here, but, um, I'm wondering if you could talk about that period maybe, and, and what, what your take on that was.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I it must have been um, really strange to have been fans really fans of Alistair Crowley operating in in California in Los Angeles at the, at the during the golden period of the movies. The combination of of worshiping celluloid gods and goddesses um, the strange juxtaposition of people arriving from all over America in Los Angeles looking to be deified by the camera for popular entertainment. The combination of that and, and this uh, strange um, new, uh, effectively new religion of Thelema operating on, in the suburbs around it. It's so it's so difficult to imagine exactly how it felt, and Crowley had the terrible problem that he wasn't able to get personal experience of it. Uh, he couldn't get over and sort it out. So all he was getting was letters from from Regina Carl and from Jane Wolfe and from Wilfred Smith, and uh, later from Jack Parsons, telling him what was going. Full of names that he didn't recognise. And he was trying to be kind. Um, He he wasn't, you know, he he was trying to make allowances for the the difficulties, but he often misunderstood exactly what was going on. I think think Martin Starr's version of the story, incredibly well documented, has a sort of, it it, it has a sort of flavour of of judgmentalism it, it, it strikes me as somebody looking down on the folly of, of the period, and, and maybe that's fair. Maybe it was a folly. Uh, Crowley certainly seems to have thought so. But um, Crowley comes out of the that book, *The Unknown God*, as a highly manipulative character who's just exploiting um, the enthusiasm of, of, of the people in California. And I, d- I don't think that's entirely true. Although I will say this to you, I, I think it's depressing that so much of Crowley's correspondence in the thirties is thirties, particularly, is is about extracting money from the Church of Falima as it became uh, Agape Lodge, in its various addresses, and uh, I, I it, it it's depressing to read it uh how often he's it's money that he wants i mean at one point wilfrid smith says you know i know you're not really interested in letters from me unless there's a financial element and that's terribly sad because wilfrid smith was was really believed in crowley in the way that frank bennett had done and and believed that he he said he said i i i know you're the greatest man in the world extraordinary thing to say. The only other comparable thing I can think of is Frank Lloyd Wright, who believed that Gurdjieff was the greatest man in the world. There must be something about these men to elicit such a statement. Um, Wilfred Smith, of course, worked for a a California gas company, so I don't suppose his opinion would be counted as highly as Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, but I don't see why not, because I don't see that an architect has any better judgment of a religious leader than, than a gas worker, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jesus' early following were mostly uh, working people, as far as we can tell. I say mostly because some obviously were were, were upper-class people of, of that period. Same with Crowley, again. Um, it's difficult to it's difficult to typify the life that they were leading. I rather admire them. I got a really warm feeling that Jane Wolfe and Regina and their Crowley evenings they were having in Pasadena and and their attempt to put on the Gnostic mass in the attic of, of I think it was Orange Grove, wasn't it? Um probably all gone now, probably bulldozed down, I should think. It has been. Yeah, it has. I I think there's something rather magnificent, and I think it'd make a wonderful movie if it wasn't sensationalised. The ordinariness of coming in from work and saying, right, we've got to prepare for the Gnostic Mass tonight, (laughs) and we've got a a bunch of people coming round, and I think there's a big gay crowd coming from the theatre, and and they go, we're having a night in favor of Walt Whitman and 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 we'll read some Crowley poems and this sort of thing, and, and all at the same time as you know Gone with the Wind is being made or Clark Gable is King of Hollywood, marvelous. I, I I actually think that period is in. I think Crowley really desperately wanted to come and be part of it, and I think he felt that he could he'd spark it into a much much more systematic system that would have worked. But that would be to presume that Crowley was a good administrator. (laughs) And I think Crowley was one of his... I don't think Crowley was a good administrator. He couldn't administer his own life effectively, uh, unlike somebody like Harvey Spencer Lewis, who could seriously administer not only his his Rosicrucian order, he could administer his own life. He was so much more practical. Crowley was a hopeless practical in the practical department. This was a terrible... And he always said, you know, he'd been brought up on checks on demand. He'd just asked his parents he needed some money, some money would arrive. And he had no conception of how to make money or how to work. it. So when he was down and he had no money and was literally close to starvation in London, his only option was to ask for money. And that's, that's all he could do. And because in England anyway in those days, there was no welfare state, you know, and he was... Hardly a person who could go and get a job as a bus conductor or work in a shop or something. I mean, it would be ludicrous. It, you know, he'd had a private fortune. Um, I think it might have done him some good to just go and get a job. But, yeah, of course, for him, it would have been a denial of what he was existed for. Yeah. But you could you could argue that, you know, he was lazy.
0: <laughs> well, but
1: think- he, he, he worked incredibly hard, didn't you know? Yeah, big problem. I do find Uh,
2: I was just going to say that reading your uh, reading Crowley's letters as as reproduced in your book, uh, I was very struck by two things in this period. One was, uh, as you say, how much He wanted to extract money from this group and not only that how he wanted them to become, you know, follow in the footsteps of Amy Semple McPherson or get Orson Welles to make one of his his uh, plays and he wanted to uh, rake in the rubes using the using Hollywood uh, and uh, which is, you know, kind of proto proto Hubbard, unfortunately, um, one could say, but also. Although you also say, you know, if Crowley had just got a passport, we would have been spared Scientology, which is, uh, yes. Um, but on the other <laughs> hand, uh, you know, if only, right? Um, but on the other hand, he's like, I, I was very particularly struck by his letters to Parsons, which I thought were it, were certainly harsh, but were were correct. And, you know, he was being very direct and, and harsh and uh, too harsh in the case of Wilfred Smith, quite cruel to Wilfred Smith, I think, in the end but he was being, he was being a very confrontational guru and pointing out to people, their fundamental, uh, destructive, you know, self-destructive patterns, which I was And so, so I was quite touched by that in his way. He was very much being, uh, playing the stern father figure from afar, even if by letters. So I don't think we can just totally say that he was exploiting. He clearly wanted money, but he clearly was also invested in it. And, and, to be fair, I mean, these things don't run themselves. I mean, you know, people, you know, it's it, as people learned in the 60s, it's quite hard to just do a commune and expect it to work on its own. So maybe, but all of that said, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it is still such a legendary period and they, they did it, you know, they they tried, you know, they, 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 they did the work and, you know, it was, seems like it was pretty chaotic, aren't, but
1: aren't all religions failures. How so? Well, if you think, I mean, Jesus is obviously is not adequately documented, but do- better documented than the beginning of most religions. Um, a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? I mean, he got crucified. Um, his disciples ran away. Uh, they were then persecuted harshly. Um took 300 years to establish the religion, uh, you know, 300 years, long, 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 long time. Buddhism, you could argue that we have the following of Buddha, but we do not have the Buddha. You know, we've got the version of it that the followers created, and the same with Islam. You know, which follower do you believe in the most, you know? It's always the same. So I I just say in terms of what the original person uh, who wanted to start this religion wanted isn't what followed. In any case, I can't think for a minute that there is a religious leader who would look at what's followed them, their followers, their disciples, and say, that's what I wanted. Crowley is much more interesting because he didn't prescribe Uh, an ideal process at all. And he, he reckoned that, he said, it may be a thousand years before the wine is drinkable, as he said, of the Aeon of Horus. But he wasn't regarding the Aeon of Horus that, the Aeon of Horus was not the responsibility of his followers to cause. Now, this is a very critical factor. Most religious figures who have a following, the following is supposed to enact the religious change required. Crowley's view was the Aeon of Horus uh, effecti- effectively becomes clicks in <laughs> in April 1904, and it'll happen anyway, and the best way of following it is to find your true will. In other words, don't follow me. He's not asking for followers. What he couldn't understand about the, the Thelemites of Los Angeles was that they seem to be floundering about unable to to run a disciplined uh group amongst themselves by sticking to their true will and i think his problem was that he never he never understood uh this problem of the between because he was a romantic he couldn't there was a disparity between the ideal and the fact and he didn't want to know too much about the fact you know, because he didn't see it anyway. He didn't see it as his responsibility. It was theirs. If they wanted to do a, if they wanted, it, he, he could have said, look, I don't care if you just drop it and go back to whatever you were doing before. That's entirely your business. But if you are going to run um, an organisation which is promoting some of my writing and some of this Thelemite philosophy, you, you really need to Get your act together, boys, you know, and stop using it as an excuse to promulgate your own obsessions. And he recognised quite quickly in in, um, Jack Parsons that Parsons really was looking for a vehicle for his own particular interests in a a kind of mega-feminist witchcraft libertarian movement. Um, it's actually very interesting how often occult movements uh, coalesce around this idea of a feminist, a sort of super feminine revolution. The same thing happened with Blavatsky, with, with Lady Keith Ness in, in Paris. Crowley comes to believe that it's the position of women that are probably central, central to the, the spiritual revolution. Parsons has a similar idea, but his idea of woman is frankly a little bit sci-fi i think um and it and and here we are again in this we're we're now in the sort of post-goddess mary magdalene neo-gnostic uh feminist universe the growth of wicca which is a highly feminized uh institution and and probably constitutes the marrow of most occultism today so-called uh it is interesting how it's this feminine thing and um of course, Crowley wasn't, was, was disposed to recognise this was a feature of the Aeon of Horus, but it wasn't something that particularly interested him in the sense that he didn't, you know, for him, he was trying to revitalise man as a whole, for male and female, every man and every woman is a star. Uh, but it's, it's strange how Parson's view was very much a, about the, an, an emergence of a new kind of woman, yeah, sort of Wonder Woman in a way,
2: <laughs> I think, from, from, Mar- from Marvel film? Parsons.
1: Did you see the film Professor Marston and the Wonder Women?
2: No, I haven't.
1: Movie made, ah, oh, this phenomenal film, uh, made about three, three years ago, the uh, Hollywood picture. Uh, it's about the creator of the Wonder Woman cartoon series, uh, and he's he he lived with two to women in, in a polyamorous state
2: variant of BDSM from what I'm what I'm aware of
1: I don't know what that means
2: uh, bondage discipline sadomasochism which was all the ropes and you know lasso of truth and all of that in Wonder Woman
1: I don't know, I never understood that that sort of stuff myself um, but I suppose you know I, I did, did it hurt anyone?
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, not not at all. But, you know, it, it, a lot of it ended up in the comics, from what I wonder, from what I understand. <laughs> Maybe impressionable yeah, young yeah, minds, as Frederick that. Wortham would say. No,
1: I, no, I, think, I, I think you're right. But then you've, got to look at, then you've got to look at the movies and the early silent films, and the girl is always tied up on the rails.
2: Yeah, what's that about? Mm-hmm. I will say, Parsons writing about... Well, um, so. Parsons writing about... Uh, you know what little writing he left um obviously is very uh, very sci-fi and and uh, perhaps naive but also makes much more sense in an american context in a way where it definitely it seems a, a distilled version of Thelema for um a more childlike country um but i will say that you know on the whole thing of religious movements becoming goddess fixated. And Freud would certainly be withering about this. He would say, it's, it's like when I had my interaction with the, inner, the head of the, the psychoanalytic association, he said, this is all, uh, you know, you want the womb consciousness. You want to go back to the womb and, and uh, uh, experience all these mystic.' I think Freud at one point says that mystics have these Feelings of revelation, of being at one with the universe, and and cosmic consciousness, and oceanic consciousness, as he calls it, and it's all this longing to return to the womb. Uh, so I think Freud would be quite withering about that. Uh, but um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this?
1: I'm looking forward to returning to the womb, <laughs> and I hope that Freud isn't. I hope that Freud isn't there when I get
0: there. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be awful.
1: I, I want to. We- Women with a view.
2: <laughs> very good. Very good. So so you're very positive about this then? About what? Uh, your thoughts about uh, women becoming the, the central kind of aspect of the entire thing.
1: I don't consider that men and women are um, different species. <laughs> <laughs> to me, we're just, uh, we're interchangeable. And... Um, if we're talking about man as we used to, mankind, I never thought that word man meant male. I thought man was the human existence. And uh, I know we say a man and a woman, uh, because there's a, there is a perfectly obvious and vive la difference. But uh, we're, you know, we stand or fall together. You know, this, this, Notion of a separatism, or dividing people up according to their particular sexual interests of the time—what we call this word sexuality—I I I think Crowley was really right on about this. He said that's you know it's your own everybody's business to find their own uh, ideal, you know what's what suits them, and it's nobody else's business. So I don't need to have it flagged for me with a badge of recognition. I mean, I'm, I'm sad that there are vast, vast parts of the world today who have no tolerance of other people's individuality. And But I'd say it's about individuality. And I wouldn't take these... Terrible designations. Am I bisexual? Am I trans? Am I this? Am I that? Do I belong with that group or another group? Oh God. You know, it's 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 like sectarianism. It reminds me of the fracture of Methodist religion in America in, in the late 18th and 19th century when John Wesley's short-ish trip to America led to. Uh, a certain amount of Methodists eventually, and then splits, becomes the Baptists, and then the Baptists split, and my God, there's how many dozens of different bloody churches are there, you know, all claiming to worship the same God, et cetera, et cetera. all claiming to have their special thing. I remember I ne- my father nearly became a Mormon at one point. We were visited by Mormon missionaries. This was in, great, in Britain in about 1971. And I remember listening to them <laughs> with their story of Moroni and the gold plates and everything. And they said, of course, in the Mormon church, we don't drink coffee. Ah, I thought to myself, even at the tender age of 10 or 11, I said, that's your USP. Your, that's your, you're the ones who don't drink coffee. Right. OK, fine. That's great. You know, I mean, I thought, what, a, what an inspiring idea that was. And then I went to meet one of their so-called apostles, and they had to give him this name Apostle, which said, you thought you were going to meet some Peter or, you know, some venerable. And some guy turns up in a suit who's about as ordinary as the bank manager and starts talking about religion in a way which I just thought showed he, he hadn't read very much, except his own material. And I... It made me, my, my dad was very interesting. He took me around all the different Christian sects, even as a child, a bit like Crowley with his father. So I met the Christadelphians, the Jehovah's Witness, all these different groups, Roman Catholic. In the end, I found the only people who seemed to live on planet Earth reasonably comfortably was the Anglican Church, the Church of England, who seemed, uh, seemed to have their feet on the ground and not be obsessed with, interpreting or over-interpreting passages from the Bible. So I don't think sectarianism is the way forward. And I, in this new sexuality thing, uh, what I ob- observe from my position is enormous sectarianism. You know, horrible stories about lesbians in Houston who don't like, won't accept transsexuals or they don't really like bisexuals because they're not real lesbians, you know. And and what's a real lesbian and what isn't? And, oh, God, hang on. Can we climb above this one? You know, I remember, I think of St. Paul. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Yeah, all brothers and sisters in Christ. What a better song that seems to me to sing with this. This rainbow isn't big enough if it only covers sexual preference. You know, that is, that is a complete, you know, it's a travesty of the notion. Uh, it's an exclusive identity. Now, I understand historically how it's come about from Stonewall and all the rest of it. I understand the enormous tremors we're going through socially to adapt to recognising what was there anyway i.e. that we're all different, right? And that to me says, well, okay, that's the struggle of Thelema in the world. But if we retreat into these defensive positions, well, where do you think we're going to end up? We're just going to end up with more and more uh, people telling other people what they should think, do, how they should make films, what they should paint, what you should write about, what's acceptable, what isn't acceptable, I've heard there are even post-Thelemites who say that Crowley we can do without, we like Thelema. Yes. <laughs> can, I do, can you I imagine? I wonder whether these people, you know, it just seems to me they haven't had a proper education in actually understanding that there's a lot more to the world than what they're thinking. You know, I, the first thing you were taught, certainly when I was at Oxford, was, was um, you know, question. Question question, question, not just your own thoughts, but anybody's, you know, put it to the test and don't be upset emotionally. If somebody has a different view, Yes. you know, which is every, you know, this is the thing about being a star as Crowley's image puts it in the book of the law is that every star is differently positioned. So the universe inevitably looks different from one person to another and uh, if I may s- go back to our french cousins and say vive la difference i'm glad you're different god you wouldn't want to be like me and i don't want to be the same as you you know so shine on brothers and sisters and if there's anything in between <laughs> whatever that might be you know yes um... we're all in between we're all in between some kind of image of somebody else's uh, choosing nobody is in a fixed position uh in society but spiritually you know there is a there is a foundation to our being
2: this is one of the things i admire very much about crowley is that um he future-proofed his work uh in a sense because he wrote it all down at such great length there's no nobody is going to be able to unless all printed media disappear from the earth um which seems unlikely uh maybe the internet but not not printed books Um, his, he will always be there. Every time I go back to Crowley's books, I have this, you, maybe you have a similar sensation. Every time I go back and reread Crowley, it, it seems different. Maybe it's because I'm different, but it seems like I'm talking in a sense to a living person. And it seems different every time. It's very strange and, um, or magical if you will. But there's, you know, people can do this thing of, oh, post Crowley Thalema and all that. But Crowley will never leave the stage. And even to the sense of, you know, the book of the law, he says, don't change it. And, uh, I thought that was so, in addition to that, I mean, being clear about his own life, writing down his own personal, but documenting the whole thing, this I greatly admire. And I think that, you know, and, and when people try to make moral calls on Crowley, it's just very boring to me. It's, it doesn't matter, right? It's like this, this document that we've been given by this person is um, profound by anybody's, you know, anybody who seriously studies it from any perspective or angle. It doesn't have to be religious. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be. In fact, uh, yes,
1: but it wasn't original. He, he also wanted people to understand that this wasn't original. It wasn't something from him. It wasn't Crowley's best thoughts. If you want to know what Crowley thought, read. Um, Sir Richard Burton's oh god, what, it's just fled from my memory. Uh, Sir Richard Burton's poem, what's it called? Casida. Read Casida by Sir Richard Sir Richard Burton, not the actor. Sir Richard Burton, the man who went to Mecca uh, and got aw- and got back alive, uh, pretending to be an Arab and succeeded because his Arabic was so good. Um, in the in the nineteenth century, Sir Richard Burton wrote this wonderful poem called Casida, and. Crowley was deeply inspired by it. That's what Crowley the man really thought, if you want to know what he thought. Um, The book of the law was a bit of a mystery to him. And what he didn't want was schools of thought arguing with each other about its meaning. So that's why the comment that says the study of the the book of the law is forbidden. In other words, he he didn't want a left wing Thelemite school, a post Thelemite, or any of this stuff. He said, the book of the law is for every person to read and make their own mind up about it. And he he even said, jokingly, semi-jokingly, it's best to burn the copy when you first have it. Did you burn yours, by the way?
2: No. No, no. I wanted to reread it.
1: (laughs) I burnt burnt my first copy because I thought he might be saying something interesting. I think he was. Um, the point is, if you, burning it is like an act of a tantric or a zen. Uh. You are actually, you, you, you are getting, you are, you've got to destroy any kind of emotional attachment to this document. If you get emotionally attached to it, you're no different to a person spouting the Koran or, or, you know, any other religious uh, venerated book. It's the impact it makes on you when you first read it. It's not there to be understood. I mean, he wrote, I think I put in the book a wonderful letter he wrote to Gerald York. Gerald York says, you know, I don't know what to think about the book of the law or something like that. And Crowley writes, it's not for you to have to think about it. You you know, he said, he said the point of view of the book of the law is so is so different to the way you and I would normally think. Um, he, said, he said it's like a doctor, you know, he, he, he doesn't get weepy about the fact that he's got to cut through some flesh uh, to save the patient, you know, he's not going to get upset about it. He said it's written from this perspective. Uh, he said, however, you're not, you don't have to understand it. You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to do yes. with it. Whatever you think about it is what you think. But I'm, he said, I am not asking you to conclude that this is great for you. He said, all I would say is, can you try to understand it? Can you try to understand it? And that means, with the caveat, that it it may not be, Crowley himself uh, was never happy with this, obviously, especially the third chapter, but he wasn't happy with the whole notion of receiving a text uh, of this, especially of a kind uh, like this, I'm afraid I personally am very much on the Israel Regardie view that the, the, the Book of the Law is very much a product of Crowley's own what you could call subconscious uh, or his, in fact, it is his holy guardian angel, I think. It's, it's, his, it's his connection. But you know, whether or not his upbringing and his anti-Christian tendency has as dominated the third part. Uh, you know, he says, don't bother debating it. If that's what you think, that's what you think. You know, mm. it may, be, who, who's to say? Who, how can you judge a text of this kind? Right. Uh, what he doesn't want you to do is follow it. Don't follow it in the sense of it's an authority, I must refer to it. Just, it's a phenomenon. Respond to it or don't. That's it. And quite honestly, that ought to be the same attitude that we should have for any so called religious text. I agree. You know, read it, you know. I did later on. Read it if you want.
2: Later on, I did do my metaphorical tantric burning of the book of the law in the early or the mid 2000s in New York. Genesis Peorage gave me a copy of what was purported to be the secret mathematical code to it. And um, I was at a point in my life after going through the Enochian where I had nothing to my name except a trash bag with a hard drive, a Hindu trishul, and the copy of the secret key of the book of the law in it. And I was on the subway uh, to my new... I had decided to leave the occult and join the advertising world. So I was on the subway to my new my new role in life, and I, I without without reading it, I left the copy of the secret key to the book of the law on the G train in New York as a symbolic act of uh, detachment. That I, I don't need this; it's already in me, anyways. So later on, I did burn the was book it, in a sense.
1: That book, the secret key, was it any good?
2: Um, m- m- maybe I don't know. I probably not. But it was—it was just the mathematical cipher, so they didn't spell out what it said.
1: Yeah, well, I—I've never found any explanation of the Book of the Law convincing in at, at any point. Um, sure. me, I—I I met a, Mard- a man who called himself Amado Crowley and claimed to ah. be Crowley's son, and he said, uh, "What was he like?" He, um,
2: what was he like in person? He—he he doesn't get mentioned very often anymore.
1: No, he was. Um, he used to speak like that. Hello. Now Lundfall. Uh, he had this, He had a very. He had a, a very serious asthmatic condition. He did look. He did look a bit like Crowley. He had big jowls, and I could believe that he might have been one of Crowley's illegitimate children. But from what I've read since, that the, the, there doesn't seem to be any truth in that view. Um, I can't think of any. Uh, all the illegit all by illegitimate I mean that he wasn't married to the mother. I mean um, you know, I've met uh Crowley's grandson and I saw Lulu um in California. And I don't understand. his story of his account of, of himself didn't match to the documents I checked for the dates and everything, but where he said Crowley had been over to France and Met his mother, and none of it made any 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 sense. I could I couldn't get, and he he got very nasty when I said, you know, I don't think your claim is going to stand analysis. And he then started. He then did a book called The Wrath of Aleister Crowley, where I and my friend who were trying to make a documentary about him suddenly, far from being his great friends, now we were we, we were we were pilloried uh, by implication as being. Um, you know, a hostile force. So I have met this sort of Crowley-nuttery stuff. I have encountered it, and uh, I would have thought to a degree where I would have been advised to just drop the whole subject, really, because it does – unfortunately, Crowley is a a subject, like religion in general, that attracts nutcases. People who have no control over their imagination at all, who are entering fields that they – Really like giving nuclear bombs to recalcitrant children, really, or people with a fixed, terribly fixed ideas, or people with a chip on the shoulder who resent something about life. And reading about Crowley makes them feel powerful. Oh, terrible! It goes on. Amazing amount of mail I get from prisons in America. Uh, you know, I, I I sometimes think the only people reading books in America are all in prison <laughs> because there's so many letters. So many letters from, from prison institutions. Uh, you know, what's, Again, what's the connection there? It's, 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 it's a, strange, a strange business. I can understand anybody who wants to have a relatively easy life saying all this religion, occultism stuff is just too much trouble. I can, I can totally appreciate the point of view of becoming a total secularist you know, okay, I give my money to charity, but my, you know, my, I'm here to feed my family or have a good time or whatever it is. I, I t- totally get that. Um, it is sad because at one time, religion, the main response, apart from murdering opponents, the other contribution of religion was the construction of beautiful buildings, religious art, poetry, you know, and so on and so forth. So many good things have come out of. Uh, of spiritual experience, so many good things. In fact, where would we have been, even in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is a secularist work of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, it is the encounter with the mysterious obelisk which leads the ape man, uh, the Neanderthal, whatever he is, ape man, so to fashion something out of something else that wasn't there before until he thought of it. Uh, there's the, in other words, the creative impulse is a, totally connected to mystery in that movie, which is a secularist movie, but it admits mystery. And the, the draw of the film is what's the mystery, and we never find out because Kubrick changed Arthur C. Clarke's ending radically and created an open-ending, uh, a great disappointment, I think, to most people. Um, but there we are. So so I, I think religion is like everything else on Earth. You have to take the rough with the smooth. And I think that's, I think obviously I wouldn't have written a book, five books on Crowley if I didn't think there was some value in it for, for everybody, obviously. You know? Uh, trying to define what that value is, is again trying to define what uh, spiritual experience can, can achieve for, for uh, civilization. I think if it's the right kind of spiritual experience, it can be the greatest you know, impulse to good and progress and, and, and unity and, and the things that we almost don't believe can happen. I think the world could be changed overnight, practically, with a spiritual impulse uh, taking root in the powder, dry powder of our times, and people getting it. There may come a point when people start to get it, um, you know, and stop looking for messianic, messianic figures, especially in politics, the notion that there's some guy somewhere who's got the answer. This is the great folly. You know, read your Bob Dylan, don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters, you know, just this rubbish that that, 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 uh, a property developer from New York has the answer to make America great. Well, he had quite a few years at at it. I didn't notice any increased greatness. (laughs) I saw an increase of his ego as if you'd think there was any their room to expand any further. And this ego clearly is very unsatisfied. He didn't have a uh, big enough game. And of course, the world was against him, wasn't it? So, I mean, all the conspiracy nonsense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's tragic that people will still expect these political messiahs um, in England at the moment Boris Johnson you know, who's got any kind of number of limitations as a human being, as I have, as you have, as everyone has. But, you know, he is, he's being castigated for impurity of thought. <laughs>
2: well, as if anyone was you know, surprised.
1: <laughs> but I'd like to say, you know, what, and what harm did he do to anybody else? He had a drink, in his garden at number ten, <laughs> for Christ's sake! <laughs> I never heard such uh, such fuss. Meanwhile, the poor people of Ukraine face the possibility, hideous possibility, that tanks will roll into their country, and due to NATO's positioning at the moment, and 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 the intransigence of the Russians and all the rest of the political me- crap, you know human beings are going to suffer horrible, miserable experiences, that they just don't need any more of these. When are we going to stop this bloody nonsense? Uh, you know, this this kind of dialogue about power, China, North Korea, Russia, America, NATO, whatever it is, it's just so, um, it's so hideously inhuman. And I do think at the moment we're in a We've entered a dark age. Yes, I do. A dark age, a dystopian dark age. It is, it is very, you know, those wonderful... What's that film, um, oh, the one with the replicants? The very, you know... Blade Runner. Uh, the one, Blade Runner. There is a Blade Runner-ish thing that we have all this technology and amazing, fabulous technology, uh, but actually the place still looks like a toilet. <laughs> you know, neon lit, nothing, uh, every kind of electrical and technological advantage, but it's still a dump. And uh, this is, does seem to me to we're in a dark age. And I, I think it, it's a perfectly valid interpretation of Crowley's apocalyptic, in the true sense of the word apocalyptic, which means the revelation of something hidden, not uh, a disaster movie. Um, Apocalyptics, apocalyptos, which is to bring something out of hiding. Apocalypse was welcomed by the Jews, many Jews, in the first century because it offered hope. We have twisted the idea of apocalypse into something hopeless, unless, of course, you're a Jehovah's Witness, etc. And then you think, well, the destruction of this world will lead to a tremendously new world. Um, it'll still be on earth if you're a Jehovah's Witness or if you're not. It'll be in heaven, whatever that, wherever that is, and and so on. Um, I think Crowley's view is, is 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 reserve judgment on these great uh, questions, but get on with finding what you're here for. And if we did, you know, that's 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 what it is. I, I, to put it in Isaac Hayes terms, you know, do your thing, <laughs> do your thing, you mm-hmm. know, um, but don't allow another person. Uh, to dominate what doing your thing ought to be. Um, I think, obviously, we we have not mastered the media. Um, The media is now what the Roman Catholic Church was in medieval Europe. It has the stained glass to dazzle the ignorant. It has the books chained up. In other words, access to significant knowledge is denied to people. it's a, it's a it's a culture of secrecy and a, a culture of domination and spiritually we're probably behind the Middle Ages at least they they had a an expectation of something better uh, we have the worst of all worlds at the moment we have a materialist culture uh, with with an apocalyptic mentality and this can only this can only result in in uh, depression and and uh alienation yeah fairly obviously i think is someone who can who can get us away from that sort of feeling
2: there's a very famous rabbi in london i'm- for- forgetting his name you probably know him uh extremely uh, popular uh, do- what is his name um but he made the point um he made the point which I thought was so I wish I remembered his name because he's extremely famous. Um, he made the point that you know where is forgiveness? Sachs. Jonathan Sachs, yes, thank you. He ma- he made the point um, there's no room for forgiveness in the modern world. You know, at least in the middle ages, you know, right. they, there was a chance for transcendence and there was a chance for forgiveness. Where's the forgiveness now? Google's yes. forever. You know.
1: Oh no. But to which I can only say the words of, of Jesus, uh, judge not, lest ye be judged. In other words, the standard, the mentality you judge other people by, you will be judged. And I don't think most people can stand that. They'd rather judge. All this trolling of people trolling and, and, and these dreadful blogs, you know, which allow people cowardly cowardly incursions on other people's privacy, uh, it really make me sick. They're low-life um, they're ignoble and unchivalrous, and uh, profoundly uh, lack understanding of the agony that all people, even idiots, but perfect fools, go through. Um, the loss of a loved one to somebody you dislike politically is no is no less than the lof- loss of your loved one, and uh, we should have the uh, the the attitude of of realizing the full full humanity in which we're involved with. You cannot cancel people you disagree with. We're part of the same world. You, you, this is a conceit that has come about from the, the iPhone, uh, this idea that you can press a button and somebody ceases to be part of your social circle. But it's a delusion, an utter delusion. What is represented on that phone is an abstraction of a reality. And the reality is we can't exclude the world might want to, we'd all like to disappear in our shell, but you can't. And dealing with other people's differences is the challenge of life and always has been. We aim for enlightenment, but we can't expect it. Human beings generally are not disposed to spiritual progress. Righteousness is technically a means to enlightenment. Most people just stick with the righteousness so long as they can point the finger at somebody else's unrighteousness. Why do they think they're righteous? I ask myself, I've never seen in my life so many people claiming righteousness on their side. I've never wanted to claim it because it always worried me that if I thought I was righteous, one day it'll be put to the test and I'll be sure to be, you know, like everybody else, have my moments of weakness, have my moments of doubt. And uh, I'm amazed that people, are, uh, you know, but it shows you there is no delusion that, that isn't open to, to, to people. And we are li- living in a deluded pseudo-paradise. I do, obviously, I think um, the rate of acceleration of, of the means of communication have a large part to play, and there are major exploiters of that in the social media particularly, which are providing too much technology to un, un, unfit receptacles. Uh, too quickly. And the the idea that everybody has an opinion, yes, but never forget, everybody has an opinion, you know? And opinions aren't worth very much. Right. If I want to build a bridge across a great canyon, am I going to ask people's opinion about how to build it? Or am I going to look for somebody who can show me his build Twenty bridges before, and they're still standing. Or am I going to go for people who say, oh, "I know what's the right way to build a bridge"? You go for the knowledge if you're intelligent. This notion of everybody having an opinion and therefore a right to impose it—this I don't accept.
2: Yeah, the science opinion. fiction, the science fiction writer Harlan Ellison, uh, when the internet was first getting started, uh, which he refused to ever get on said uh, very funnily, you don't have a right to an opinion, you have a right to an informed opinion. And that's no, something I, I think, wish people had taken to heart.
1: I think you, no, you were, I, I, I'd say you, you have a right to an opinion, but you don't have a right to have it taken seriously.
2: <laughs> also true. I want to circle back a little bit because you mentioned 2001, and uh, uh, it, I was actually thinking about it while I was reading your book. Uh, Uh, interestingly also, you know, John Lennon's favorite movie, he thought he thought everyone should just watch it on acid in in uh, theaters that would be put across America as new churches, uh, and a really beautiful movie that I think of all movies really summarizes, uh, Thalema very well in strange ways. Even the fact that they're trying to get to Saturn, which is Bina and all of this. But the segue here is the very end of the movie where David Smith sees, um, Uh, His own future self dying in a room often reminds me of Crowley and Netherwood for some reason. And uh, I do do want to touch on that part of his life. Uh, And so there's a couple of tangents I want to talk about here. But one is, I was actually surprised in the section of, um, um, you know, you're you're so... um, Tolerant of Curley's humanity, but I was actually quite surprised that the, the section on netherwood Although very much brings out his humanity also shows him quite quite destitute and uh, not particularly pleasant And I think you have a line in here where somebody says that he has an air of corruption around him as he's dying and uh, Maybe I'm fixating on the wrong things here, but um, I wonder if you want to talk about this period because in in so many ways Obviously, Crowley at Netherwood is the first thing his critics hop to and say, well, you know, look how he ended up. That's what black magic gets you or something really silly like that, as if old age doesn't get anyone, everyone anyways. And, um, uh, you know, they make this point about D as well. It's like, well, well, what do you think being in your 70s in Elizabethan England was like, you know, so um, but. I wonder what your thoughts are, I mean, that you've got very grim passages in here about him you know, shooting up in his leg and getting an abscess because he didn't clean the skin first and uh, you know, his, his fellow tenants seem to be quite um, uh, in horror of him and, and so forth and young Kenneth Grant is popping around and being kind of a sweetie. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this period?
1: Yeah well, I, I, I'm very sorry, uh, I'm very sorry if the, if the narrative has come over that way to you, because I certainly didn't see it that way, I was not prepared to cut Eliza Butler's, which is the main person you're talking about, Eliza Butler, uh, who was a Cambridge um, uh, doctor of of, um, of uh, well I can't remember her exact subject, but she was writing a book on the Magi. So she was obviously a an historian. Um, and she came over from Cambridge a- as an example of a new magus. And she was unimpressed by the ma- poor man she found on his last legs uh, in 1946 in 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 Netherwood in Hastings, a little, uh, very nice, very nice boarding house. Um, I wasn't going to cut that just because, uh, you know, it was her impression of Crowley was 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 not was not inspiring to say the least I think she was embarrassed and I I think she was she felt intimidated and there are all sorts of reasons anyway she came in the middle of winter that was her that was her experience and um she had a bad one and there was also another a couple of ladies who went to visit him and the uh Lady Wellington Koo, who was the wife of the Chinese ambassador to England at the time, came down to visit him because her friend, Lady Kenmar, had suggested that Crowley was a real magician who could actually make rain uh, rain fall where he exactly wanted it, It the common notion of a magician. And she was not impressed either. I don't think anyone would have been impressed uh, by Crowley at Netherwood unless they understood where he'd come from. And why he was there. Um, they were seeing them. They were seeing a man who, to the outward appearance, was a bit of a wreck. Um, but on the other hand, we are talking a man who, who was seventy, um, who'd been kept alive and free for, not partially free from, crippling asthma and bronchitis with heroin, since it was prescribed by his family doctor, Dr. Batty Shaw of Harley Street, London, in 1919. And he'd taken heroin as the only uh, effective relief, and it wasn't always effective, uh, from from crippling asthma. So his voice was very reedy. He coughed, coughed, coughed so much. I remember when my father had MRSA, which is the bacterium in hospital, His voice changed forever. He started to talk like that. And poor Crowley suffered from his nodes in his throat by then were damaged. His breathing was terrible. He hardly ate anything. And so they were greeted by a diminished figure. Um, And, of course, being, you know, they were women thinking they're going to meet a powerful magician, and meeting basically a retired old gentleman who was um, entire life was basically either playing chess or writing letters to uh, significant people in his business. So, of course, the picture to them looked negative. On the other hand, I would say that the ma- a man who'd lived a life as varied and exciting as his had every right to um, basically retire. I mean, he was exhausted, exhausted. Why do you think I've written five books? It's because I wrote them because when I read Churchill's biography by Martin Gilbert, it ran to eight fat volumes and nobody minded that. But Crowley was always dismissed in a single volume, but his life is extraordinarily well-documented and most of it unpublished And he is a fascinating figure. And personally, I don't mean politically as fascinating, but personally as fascinating as Churchill. And I think Churchill would have been the first person to agree with me that Alistair Crowley was an extraordinary character. Now, in that extraordinary character were all kinds of conflicting tendencies. Uh, As it turned out, none of them criminal. Um, He was never arrested uh, for, I think the only thing he was ever arrested he was no. Actually, wasn't even arrested. He was. Uh, he paid a fine for not closing his blackout curtains during the war. That's the about the most you could throw at him. The rest was rumor, and uh, and tabloid newspapers. So no, I I th- I think of his his retirement years as very very lovely. Um He okay. was deeply deeply frustrated. I I consulted a book by. Anthony Clayton who'd written a lovely book which he sent to me personally 10 years ago called Netherwood and I didn't want to repeat what he'd written so I said in the book for more details read Netherwood by Anthony Clayton because he's written that book and he's every right to uh, to to any anything any respect going for that work and so I, I just kept the thing as brief as I could and tried to deal with some things that some things that weren't in that book and, and, and other things that were immediately necessary. But no, I, I, I think you've, you've probably heard some criticism of Crowley and, and it struck you and it's colored it. But I don't think of that at all. I think Great.
2: Yeah, this is, why I wanted of, to a, this is why I wanted to ask you rather than what, yeah, what because
1: you're... There were other people who visited him who had a lovely time, like, like of course, uh, the mother of his son, you know, uh, Deirdre um she she came and visited him and frida harris especially frida harris's she she did drawings of him through that time uh she was a devoted and caring follower who kept him alive this was a man who really wasn't very good at keeping himself going and and at this point he was it's 45 46 47 he was he was uh suffering uh from old age um Goodness me, I don't know what you're going to be like at 70 or myself. <laughs> I don't like to think about it. And in my case, it's not very long to go. Um, you know, you lose your faculties. Crowley, was, Crowley kept his faculties actually till the very end when he sadly wrote to somebody, I don't know why you'd want to come and see me. I'm just a log, a log, you know, just like a bit of wood, nothing much going on. Uh, But actually there were quite a lot of projects he was trying to get going in that time. A lot of his time was spent with with a man called John Simons who wrote the first biography, who exploited Crowley hugely and frankly wasted an enormous amount of Crowley's time. Um, But I think his happiest happiest contacts were with uh, uh, Grady Louis McMurtry, uh, one of the Californian followers who was well in touch um, yes, well, Kenneth Grant turned out to be a rather poor, from Crowley's point of view, poor secretary. But the the man was doing the best he could, and he was only a young man at the time, anyway. I mean, a lot was built on 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 the short time he was Crowley's assistant.
0: Yeah,
1: um, but I think I, I I actually was written to by somebody recently who knew. um, the lady who looked, ran the nur- uh, not nursing home, sorry, the ra- ran the boarding house. It wasn't a boarding house; it was really a hotel from the nineteen thirties. Very well run, with excellent food, had all sorts of social engagements. Wasn't at all a flop house or a dump. It was actually a very nice place to be, and it was it was famous. People came to lecture there, even when Crowley was living there. And uh, no, it was it was it was a bohemi- a, a bohemian atmosphere very well-run, with good food, well-organised, lovely old house, used to be a school. No, nothing wrong with Netherwood at all. He To say he ended up there is, well, that was where he lived. He'd moved from a pub. He'd been living in a pub since 1943 to 45 because of the bombing in London. He finally, there was a massive bomb landed in Duke Street, um, right by his house in German Street in Piccadilly, uh, which blew a corner of the block, completely away shattered all the. when he got back to his bedroom his bed was covered in broken glass from this terrible bomb the Germans had sent over I don't know whether it was one of the V1 V2 it was a huge explosion and uh, and it changed the whole traffic so all the traffic was coming down German Street and he couldn't hear and he had to get out so he'd been living in a pub in Buckinghamshire for a couple, uh, nearly two years but by the time he, he goes to um it was his best friend, Louis Wilkinson. Louis Wilkinson's son found this place, Netherwood, and said, "Would this be a suitable place? Would you like to move here?" Now, Crowley had always liked the south coast of England, so no, I, do, I think I think of his Netherwood years as, as, as on the whole, the things that bothered him were not his living conditions, which were, which were, were clean and and well organized and and highly civilized. Um, Johnny—it was the nickname of the lady who ran the place with her husband—ran uh, a, a very successful uh, and old-fashioned, but also bohemian establishment, and people loved it. And it was—it was a health, healthy, very healthy place, and, and it was a good, a good place for him. Nothing, nothing wrong with it at all. And um, his only frustration was the British government. Churchill had been voted out in 1945. And Clement Attlee and the Labour Party had, had um, come to to govern uh, England and the British Empire, and uh, he was Crowley's despair was the total mess that the Labour Party were making of the govern, government of the country and the post-war situation. Those are the things that frustrated him the most. He couldn't believe how he called Attlee uh, nobody with a moustache <sighs> And he desperately wanted to come over to America in the sunshine of California, which would have probably saved his life.
2: Well, thank you for clearing that up because that that uh, and the reason I ask is because that whole period forms so much of the, um, you know, the the common cloud of uh, the common knowledge or the common cloud of rumor and, and scandal around Crowley. And, and maybe it's from John Simmons. I, I don't know. But um, that that sounds. Um, thank you for clearing that up. Let me just ask you one, a totally tangential question for for the end. And this is purely for personal interest, which is Crowley's interest in Taoism in China. uh, In the final part of his life, he became totally fascinated with Obviously, the I Ching, and I think at one point said, you know, if he had twenty more years, he would just dedicate it to the study of the I Ching. This is something that very rarely, if ever, gets talked about or or written about. His sudden sudden fascination with Taoism and seeing it maybe even as a, a superior to Western esotericism. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how far did he take that? What was his interest? Uh, what, what were his views on that?
1: I, I think that you're quite. Quite mistaken to believe this was a sudden late development. Um, Crowley had experienced China um, first of all in 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 1901 um, when he sailed from San Francisco uh, and, and went to Tokyo uh, and then went to Shanghai, and he was immediately struck when he was in the Far East. This was before he took up yoga in Sri Lanka in 1901. He was immediately struck by the quality of the Chinese people he met. And he was he felt that they had a spiritual superiority uh to to Westerners at that point in the old um in the old system in in China. He'd also been he liked Chinatown in San Francisco as it was before the earthquake. Um, he then went in 190 uh, late 1905, 1906 he walks across southern China, Yunnan Province, uh, into what, what became, was known then as Indochina, and what, you know, what today is, is, is Vietnam. And uh, a lot of, <laughs> funnily enough, a lot of the places you read about in the history of the Vietnam War, he, he tra- traipsed through with his wife and child. Uh, so he had a lot of experience of China and was impressed. Um, he said the, things like um, you, there is, the, Chi, the Chinese have a, a, their fundamental awareness talk, in his time, we're talking 120 years ago, um, have no doubt of the futility of earthly existence by itself. And to him, this is the cardinal point, the first point of the philosophy of, of Crowley, is there's nothing to be gained from this world alone. He said, "So you know, he'd been through the trance of sorrow, as he called it, uh, from which he related to the Buddhist idea of this world being basically a futile uh, passage with uh, sort of no beginning, no end, and no root to it. Um, So there's a you know he he felt that the Chinese civilization had absorbed that message, um, which is an absolutely non positivist message." Um, and he was impressed by that. He's, he got involved with the I Ching uh, really quite soon after that uh, because there were quite a few good books on it. The French, uh, I forget the name of the Frenchman, it's on the tip of my tongue, but published uh, the Tao Te Ching in Paris in the late 1880s, early 1890s. Um, well, I'm sure Crowley knew, knew of the book. He, he, the, the author was a Frenchman who'd served in the, uh, French civil service in, in, in Indochina and was a complete convert to Taoism. Um, very peculiar name and I can't remember it. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, so no, he wasn't, it wasn't new at all. He, he, he was doing the sticks for years and years and years actually. Um, and he, t- in fact, when he's at Netherwood at the end in 1946, when Madame Wellington, Ku, the Chinese um, ambassador's wife, comes to visit him with Lady Kenmar, he tells her that uh, China would be all right if they'd stick with their spiritual traditions. Um, he's obviously saying, you know, you can dump your communist this communist thing. Of course, the communists haven't taken over at this point. They were very close to doing so. Um, so this was still the period of nationalist China, which is now embedded in Taiwan. Um, so he was, uh, he was deeply respectful of the Chinese The really important thing to grasp is to Crowley, who did a transliteration of several of the classics of what uh, we call the I Ching uh, and Taoism, when I say transliterations, they weren't translations. They were they were uh, his his poetic version of translations, which already existed. Uh, he identifies the Tao with the true will. This is the key point, and so for him, this harmonizes with his philemic synthesis of Gnostic traditions in the West and uh, his uh, his understanding of uh, the Advaita. Advaita schools in India and he brings in the Taoist as well so to him the Tao is the unconscious being this is this is this whole point don't go to the right don't go to the left stick with the Tao and he he, he loved it for its simplicity so he he often had himself portrayed as a Chinese sage um and 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 imagine that he was in fact a Chinese sage in a previous life so his view of modern China would be: get back to your Taoism and your I Ching, and stop this horrible amalgam of nationalism, uh, fascism, and capitalism. That they and communism. I mean, they've kind of inherited all the all the detritus of the Western heresy mm. uh, of of those you know nationalism, capitalism, communism, fascism seems to be rolled up into one system at the moment over there. And he would say that it will not last. But of course, they will hang on to it uh, with dire results for everyone under the under the jackboot of these goose-stepping, you know, neo-Chinese people who've got rich on capitalism and are spending it on communism. It's one of the it's a terribly sick situation in which the Western world has participated fully and openly since Nixon went over in '72. Uh, in his great Kissinger-led uh, dream of, of capturing the political initiative. And since then, the West has been pouring money into China. And surprise, surprise, what's happened? Yes, they built a large fleet of ships and exercised their uh, desire to carry on. It's, it's, Crowley would have a lot to say about it, I'm sure.
2: Wonderful conversation. Thank you for for hanging in with me for so long. Um, Thank you very much. The book is called Alistair Crowley in England. It is the fifth of a series. Where can people... It's out now, right?
1: It is. It is. is. Good,
2: good. So where people can, I presume...
1: Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. Yes, there we are. uh, it's, uh, It's available across across the wonderful United States.
2: And people should get the other books in the series also. Uh, what are the By names the, of the other four, please?
1: Yeah, it's, I don't know how many fans there are of Tintin books in America these days. I love,
2: I like Tintin. I, I enjoyed that comment in your book.
1: Right. Well, so I, I sort of thought about that. So we have Alistair Crowley in Berlin. That's uh, a really lovely one. Alistair Crowley in America, which is the biggest of the bi- biographical works because of the amount of time he spent there. Um, which is about the time he spent there, and his legacy, uh, we have Alistair Crowley in India, uh, which covers his amazing mountaineering exploits and his mystical researches in, in India uh, before the First World War, which have not been documented properly ever before. Uh, that's a very important book because I wanted to people to understand what we mean when we talk about Indian religion, because a lot of confusion naturally with so many schools of thought between buddhism and hinduism and the west i remember meeting jonathan's um i did an interview with um um uh, oh god uh patrick swayze <laughs> after, after he made the film uh, uh the one shot in calcutta and uh what was it what's the name of the film i can't remember it's not about 1991 i interviewed him and on film in london and he was so enthusiastic about india but the way he spoke about the philosophy suggested that it, it received a kind of plastic notion of it in california where it's all sort of becomes one thing it's a mixture of ravi shankar <laughs> the beatles a bit of this a bit of that a bit of the other and it's all sort of sounds great
2: man. yeah Cal- californian hinduism absolutely yeah.
1: Uh, what's that place in uh, in California where they first studied tantra systematically?
2: Kasselin, uh, no yes, not, okay. exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sort of that, that sort of hi- hippie amalgam is very misleading and has been very misleading. And uh, to the extent that uh, when I talk to people, I've constantly find people can't tell the difference between Buddhism, even and the Hinduism. Never mind
0: yeah. the
1: very many schools who conflict on a fundamental principle. So I wanted to clear that up. Part of the Crowley in India book was to do that. Uh, but the other part is to tell this phenomenal story of Crowley's activities in, the, in climbing K2, the first uh, major attempt on K2, Kanchenjunga, and he comes over as, a, as an eccentric hero of mountaineering in a period when they hadn't even thought of taking oxygen with them up the mountains. And that, that's, that's the great one. So we got, what have we got? We got Berlin. We got the original biography, Crowley the biography, Crowley in Berlin, Crowley in America, Crowley in India. Now we've got Crowley in England. And uh, unless I've missed one, there's one more to come.
2: Well, you said it was penultimate. So there's, you have one, one in the works.
1: One more to come. And I think it will be the best. And I'm not going no, no to spoil it.
2: <laughs> okay. I'm
1: not going to spoil it, but it will be a revelation to anyone who's really interested.
2: Well, I'm very interested in that then. Well, thank you very much. I uh, I have all the books. I highly recommend them. They are excellent um, for everyone who's listening. And uh, thank you very, very much for uh, our second conversation. Uh, that was excellent.
1: Thank you. Thank you indeed, Jason. I'll be your Argonaut.
2: <laughs> much, <laughs> much flattered. Thank you.